episode of Video Game Logic. Today's episode was recorded on July the 21st, 2020. I'm your host, gaming psychologist, and with me, as always, having stuck around this long... Caffeine Rage. On today's show, it is our official, actual 200th recorded numbered episode, or whatever you want to call it. We're going to be having a little bit of an a 200th episode retrospective, and we're going to talk about our transformative 12. Ooh, fancy... Yeah. Hello, Rage. Uh, hello, once again. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this it's is closer it. to like 250, actually, if you count unnumbered episodes and specials, huh? Yeah, because we've got all the Franken episodes, which are unnumbered. Uh, uh, the, the E3 Christmas stuff. Special, yeah, all the E3 stuff is unnumbered. The Christmas special, or Christmas episode every year is an unnumbered episode, mm-hmm. but it's specially recorded. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, we're at like 190-something just on... Uh, Podbean, and that, that is missing like forty or fifty some uh, episodes as well, because yeah, uh, that just got lost in the shuffle yeah. from the uh, early days when we transferred it over from archive.org or whatever that was. We were putting the episodes on and then hosting them through Blogger or whatever. Yeah, which <laughs> that was I, a I, nightmare. I, I, which I would say that you know, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Those are uh, uh, bad anyway, but. Hey, it's not like we improved that much anyway, hey? Yeah, in a show like this, too, that's, like, really, for the most part, topical, going back and listening to old episodes is, like, a weird thing. Like, certain shows, like, anything that's narrative, or maybe that has, like, one-off topics that aren't necessarily sort of uh, contemporary, you go back and listen to. But on something like this, like, jumping in, you, like, you just kind of have to jump in. Only thing that uh, you really would pick up would be like some of the end jokes or something, you know, like Jared, put your pants on for once. <laughs> but that's from or spinning Kerbal around Cast in days. my desk chair. Uh, both of those Kerbal Cast days. Yeah, true, true. But I mean, we've been doing this for for five years. So we the I remember a very first episode that we recorded as like a test. I was at my in-laws house for Christmas and I recorded it on my laptop. Still have the same laptop and like a shitty headset that I had with me just sort of randomly. Oh, how far we've come <laughs> in that respect. Yeah. I mean, the the only like cuz when we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, where I was like, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about how we've changed and stuff that's gone on, but aside from just like a lot of life that has happened in 5 years, the only real changes that I can think of in myself are I'm like a cynical old bastard now. You're welcome. And and um, I've gotten really good at editing this show and only this show. Yeah, I would say I got even more cynical and jaded about the gaming industry as a whole. I mean, I look at a trailer and I'm just thinking, oh, this is mostly bullshit. Or, yeah, wait and see. I mean, the the best I get these days is cautiously optimistic. And it has to be fucking impressive for it to ha- for that to happen. Yeah, I think for the most part, when we started, I was hopeful, but like grounded, but hopeful. Like I thought every game had a chance to be good, but you know, still no pre-ordering and stuff like that. And at this point, I'm like, fuck it, it's probably going to be terrible. And if it's not, I'll get it in two years when it's five dollars on Steam. Yeah, it's just or it comes off of its bullshit epic exclusivity. 
you know, which that's a new thing, but still, uh, but, uh, but that doesn't even, uh, you know, that's not even a guarantee these days because now we have games leaving Steam to go to Epic, but now probably be bitching next week. Indeed. Indeed. A topic for next week. Perhaps. Uh, Depends on how many games we actually decide to talk about, plus Game Club, so. Yeah. Yeah, Game Club's <laughs> going to be a big one. But that's also another thing, is Game Club has kind of gotten me off of being just really focused on individual games and uh, not really uh, trying different things, because I've always considered myself pretty wide on my taste, but forcing me to not focus so much on a singular game. Yeah, Game Club has really helped me expand my horizons. And some of this could be also, like, as you get older, you change. And uh, I'm I'm almost 30, which I know that's not, like, old man status, but there's a big difference in, in oh, no, my... Oh, no, you still need to get the fuck off my lawn. <laughs> there's a big difference, though, in the way that I play games now and approach games now versus how I did, you know, five years ago. And there's a lot of games that five years ago me would be like, yeah, fuck that, I'm not playing that. But now I am because, you know, a combination of Game Club, you've gotten me to play games that I wouldn't otherwise. And then also, just in general, you have gotten me to play games I wouldn't otherwise. And so building some familiarity and interest in, like, really good games in a particular genre will let me play the less really good ones, but still enjoyable ones. Yeah, partly just uh, co-op or suggesting something. Uh, Like uh, SteamWorld Heist uh, on the Switch, I suggested it because I knew it. And knew that you liked tactics games, and that's a 2D tactics game, not a XCOM-like. Yeah. So, and I, I probably wouldn't have ever picked it up without your recommendation, but I, I have, and I've enjoyed it. Well, and that will be well that's the third game in the Steam World, or fourth game in the Steam World uh, uh, series. And they're kind of, they're also in the same world, but they're outside of the first, uh, or outside of Steam World Dig and Steam World Dig 2. I don't think there's an overarching story. No, they're all set in just sort of the same universe, so it it gives you like a super basic story primer on the world, and then it just like immediately dives into its own story, and you don't have to have played anything else. I mean, it's not even uh, Final Fantasy esque because yeah, you know, Final Fantasy is always its own universe as well, unless it's a set in like a mini uh, series. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm, we'll play it longer and talk more about it next week or maybe in two weeks. Again, depending on how the uh, next week turns out with Game Club and stuff. but Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one, which I need to yeah, spend I mean, more time with. Uh, and I have a lot of thoughts on that one already. <laughs> me too. Um, I'm at the, I've, I've finished Act 2, so one act to go. Uh, I hadn't finished the first act. It's just, uh, there's some things I really like and there's other things that put me off from playing it more. But But that's Game Club. That's next week. Very true. Um, you know, outside from those things that we just talked about, though, like, yeah, I mean, huge things in my life have changed, and... Yeah, same but, here, obviously. But, you know, the way that I approach gaming and the show and my personality, like, I suppose the only other thing maybe worth mentioning is that, like, most of my friendships have come from the show over the course of the last five years, like you, obviously, but the group that I play Star Wars RPG with is all composed of people that I met because of the podcast... And then just in general, like uh, most of the people that I talk to on a regular basis or play video games, you know, with is in our Discord chat for the show, which is not huge. You know, we got like, I think, well, I can look. How many people do we have on our Discord? Yes. Uh, 33. Well, no. 
Craig. That's one bot, two bots, 30, 31. So not like a huge amount of people, but like a perfect small community to talk to and play games with and shitpost with in general chat. So like that's most of my friend group. And yeah, I wouldn't have met those people without the show. So that's been a big change that's, a, you know, affected me and my personality and the way I play games and stuff. But the rest of it is just stuff outside in my life that has happened as the world has burned down and I have done my best <laughs> to move on. Yeah, pretty despite much. Despite that. Yeah, uh, I would say probably the other two big ones is trying YouTube and then and Twitch as well, but also falling off of them because I'm not an extreme enough personality or not cringy enough. Uh, or the, I guess the other one is sort of being good enough or bad enough at video games because there's always like that bell curve or the inverse bell curve. If you're, yeah, if you're not extremely good or extremely poor at video games enough to generate traffic, no traffic at all. Right. And does it yeah. help that whenever I was doing YouTube stuff, I was doing 20 to 30 minute episodes and. The algorithm was uh, winning, like, just right at 10 minutes. Yeah, and the algorithm never stays consistent or makes any sense anyways, so, you know, good luck trying to chase that. Yeah, I mean... Essentially. I, I mean, it was more wanting to sh- uh, share passion, and it's just... Uh, for a while, I just kept on doing it, even though I had no views, at times, literally. But it's also disheartening to keep doing it and, you know, pouring the time and... Uh, effort into it and just nothing so i eventually just fell off of it particularly whenever one of the sites i used to get review codes which was one of the few things that actually generated traffic for my channel uh bugged out when i added twitch to be able to stream some and cut me off from uh access to that and jim star only actually talked about you know access being everything for journalists and whew, right yeah because gaming is an expensive hobby I mean, even just doing indie stuff, if you're not getting actual revenue from it, it adds up quickly. And, oh, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, that's something else that has changed for me as well, actually, that I didn't think about until just now. But because of my changes in my life, like when we first started, I was fresh out of graduate school, you know, basically didn't have a job, didn't have any money. And I mean, I'm not rich by any sense of the imagination now, but... I do have some disposable income. And so sometimes, like, primarily when I buy games, I do buy them on sale. But every once in a while, if I see something that I think is interesting enough, I'll just buy it. And that's an interesting experience to have a different... Because before, one of the things that I've always talked about, and we still talk about it on the show too, especially with, like, Discovery Q, is like, oh, is this worth... How much is this worth? And for me, sometimes, like, that value proposition doesn't matter anymore because... You know, if I want something, I can at least sometimes get it. And that's an interesting feeling. And that's only really happened in the last year for me. But that's something that has affected the way I think about and play games. Yeah. Uh, I'm still a bit of a cheap bastard when it comes to games. But I've also expanded, at least somewhat recently, uh, to a handheld. So doing uh, Nintendo stuff as well, which honestly does not go on sale that often. So, getting uh, secondhand stuff there and uh, touring around with that, yep, uh, putting a little bit more money towards that as well, and diverting a little bit from PC, but also I would say just uh, getting a little bit fed up with covering games, or I should say, uh, the culture around games, 
how it's I'm trying to think of a good way to put this. Actually, it's uh, it feels very contradictory talking about how games need to grow up, but then whenever a, a topic is discussed, it's all just too. It's just a game, you know that contrary, almost hypocritical feel to it that maybe back away a bit from gaming as well. I mean, I still play games quite a bit, but you know, I go cook a lot more, I bake a lot more. Yeah. Gaming for me also a big shift is I've I've always done this to some extent, but in the last couple of years especially, most of the games that have filled out my gaming, you know, the most of my gaming time are games that I can play in the background of listening to podcasts. Yeah, for like that's not true for all of them, but by and large it's like the games that I play are games that can be done while also doing something else. I've actually fallen off quite a bit on podcasting, uh, just uh, listening to podcasts in general. I need to actually pick up a few of them again. But uh, a lot of the ones I listened to had just stopped or had uh, really tapered off on uh, their quality, So, which yeah. was disappointing. That towards the end, I was just listening to like Great Detectives of All Time Radio and uh, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with uh, Mystery Hour every so often. Yeah. I used to listen to a lot of like just straight up gaming podcasts, but now not so much anymore. Well, there's not a, a lot of lot out there. Well, there's a lot, but there's only a few like big ones. Yeah, that's. But I most of the gaming podcasts that I listen to either turned into like hardcore like corporate apologists for the gaming industry, which is a huge turnoff for me, or were co optional, which unfortunately passed. Alongside with TV, well, and well, so. it lingered after uh, uh, Total Biscuit died, but uh, pretty much uh, once Jenna went to Korea, that was pretty much the beginning of the end because just scheduling nightmares because you know that's adding how many hours to the time shift? A lot. I don't think it's it's ten or I don't think it's twelve well, hours. Well, but well, I well she's also close. over the international dateline, so she's also after doing that conversion. But, um, but hell, yeah. I mean, I mean, she, uh, uh, also had a lot more stuff going on. I mean, she had, after TB died, he, or she, I'm sorry, she, uh, uh, had her cancer research, uh, resurgence. She was actually battling cancer while Total Biscuit was, uh, uh, uh battling and losing his battle. Uh, she also has the COVIDs. Uh, I think she's recovered by, uh, uh, from now, or by, uh, by now on that one, but I'm not 100% sure. But she's just uh, had a lot going on, and, you know, the co-optional was uh, a, a casualty of that, which is a shame because it was actually one of the few I found enjoyable to listen to because, like you said, they, they, there's not a lot of podcasts out there that are willing to hold the game industry to task. And honestly, uh, Jim Sterling can get a little old. <laughs> and he seems to be one of the few that does that these days. Yeah. Well, I listen to Podquisition. I have for years, which is Jim Sterling's video game podcast. Although it's about 50% politics and 50% video games this time, this by now. Um, which might turn a lot of people off. I, I love it. I love that they're all like, fuck capitalism. But... I totally get if you're like, no, the world is horrible enough. I don't want to hear more about it. Yeah, but actually, we're, yeah, I, but we're gonna have a well. Go ahead and announce this: uh, an unnumbered special, probably in addition to 
the normal episode that week. Uh, just a, po- a political episode, probably mid to late October. Yeah, uh, just a retrospective That's of the, the last four <laughs> years, <laughs> right? the The October Game Club is <laughs> let's talk U.S. politics for two hours. Yeah, the October Game Club is real life. Yeah, the scariest game. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. We will have an October Game Club. We'll play something spoopy. Yeah, well, we yeah. have a couple actually really good candidates for that as well. Yeah, and hopefully uh, uh, don't end up like last year where it works for yeah for me for the first hour, and then it just decides eh, no, you're not your, your game's not going to work all that well now. Right. Well, I yeah, I don't I don't think I have I I thought this part would be longer, but you know we've drifted way away from changes in our own experience, which par for the course for us really, but. I don't think I have any more to add to this, and uh, I'm excited for this next one, so... Yeah, not really. I mean, I, it's kind of accentuated, uh, or the podcast, or my, uh, yeah, the last few years. Uh, I don't think I've really changed all that much. Maybe slightly less cranky uh, in general, but still a curmudgeon when it comes to video games. But then again, right. you know... Uh, there's been times I've just looked at uh, at the news. It's like, oh, I what would I uh, give for Toll Biscuit? I will now talk about this topic for X amount of minutes, right? Yeah, because honestly, it's kind of disgusting at times. Indeed. Um. Okay. Let's talk about something cool. So you and I, I I've. I, the origin of this, which is our uh, Transformative 12, which came from you springboarding off of my idea of calling it our Significant 12, but Transformative 12 is better because of alliteration. Um, you could tell I, I'm a I had said writer, a, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I could, I, I, I have suggested a couple of times, like, oh yeah, we should do like a top 10 of some kind, or our, you know, our top 10 favorites, or top 10 best, or whatever, and We've always said, like, yeah, someday we'll figure out a way to do that, but it's like, how do you quantify a list like that? You get It's very subjective. It would have to be something personal. It would take some time to think about. And for episode 200, we figured that was the perfect time to do it. And so the, the rules for this are, basically, there's no rules. Just these are, like, 12, and you picked 12 because you thought that it was just sort of, like, a little bit random. Well, you know, well 10 it, is the standard, 11 is too obvious, so we'll go with 12. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, the only rule... Be thankful I didn't go for the Baker's Dungeon, right? Right. Yeah. Um, the only rule is that these games had to be significant to us in some way. So it could be one of our favorites, something that we think is the best, something that we, you know, hate, but, like, transformed us in some way or another. So, I listed, I've just got mine listed alphabetically, and we're gonna go back and forth, you know, we'll take turns, and if one of us says one that the other one has... Uh, just to, you know, we can pipe up and be like, oh yeah, that's on my list, and we can talk about it at the same time together. I have no idea how long this is going to take. We're going to go until we're done. Yeah, but we and have I, coffee. We do. It it might only be an hour, which seems unlikely, but you never know. Or more likely, it will be like between two and three hours. But, you know, <clears> we're all along for the ride on this one. So, we haven't, we haven't talked about it before. Who wants to go first? Do you want to go first, uh, or do you want me to go first? Oh, what the hell, uh. I'll let you go first, since I, usually when we talk about games we played, I, I go first. 
Okay. Cool. So the first game on my list, and this is kind of representative of the entire series, but I picked this one out because I liked it the best and spent the most time with it. Um, Ace Combat 5. So this is gonna like sort of set the tone for a lot of these games on my list. I played, I started playing the Ace Combat series when I was in, I think, middle school. It's, it's hard to remember for sure, but Ace Combat is one of two games that are going to be on my list that got me interested in a wider world of something else because of video games. Like, not only was Ace Combat a fun game, and when you're a kid and you don't have that many games, you play them over and over and over again. Like, I unlocked everything in this game for an arcade flight game. There were a lot of, like, Easter eggs and little hidden things that you could do, challenges to complete, bonus things to unlock, in in all of the Ace Combat games that I've played, I haven't played the most recent couple, so that trend might not be the same, but, you know, there was a lot of stuff to find as a kid, but also, I just became enamored with aircraft, and in this was sort of one of the first, like, and this has defined a huge aspect of my life going forward. This is one of the first things that really sent me down a rabbit hole to explore and learn something new, which is a huge defining aspect of my personality. Like, I get interested in something, I go absorb it, I learn about it. I Obviously, I don't become, like, an expert in it, but compared to, like, someone who has no experience with, in this case, aircraft, like, I know a lot about military fighter jets. And in, in all reality, like, this sort of spawned my love for history. So not only did I enjoy the heck out of the series playing... Ace Combat 5 specifically for probably hundreds of hours. Like, I played through that campaign, God, 50 times. Um, But also, you know, Ace Combat 4 and Ace Combat uh, 6 and Ace Combat the... Oh, God, it was like a weird spinoff game where you were like mercenary pilots, which I thought was interesting. Belkin Front? The Belkin Front, I think? I'm not sure, but, you know... One of the, like, this is how much I love the series. And for a while, like, this won't work now. I don't use this password anymore. But one of the characters, like, call sign was Solo Wing Pixie. And that was my, one of my passwords for a long time on, like, my email and some other stuff. Like, that's, you know, it was something that got ingrained into my brain that I could remember as a password. And it's one of those things that's, like, multiple words, like, smushed together are actually a really strong password because it's fairly random to any kind of, like, uh, brute force password cracker, but you know, you can remember it so you don't have to write it down. But anyways, like this was just a game that, you know, and a series that was really significant to me because it prompted uh, me wanting to learn about aircraft and military history. And also, I mean, it, it propelled me forward to want to be interested in more serious flight sims. You know, the Microsoft flight sims come to mind, but there's military flight sims as well. And, um, sort of helped push me in that direction for gaming. I, I credit a lot of my current interest and enjoyment and even things like Elite Dangerous and um, some other games that are going to show up on this list because of Ace Combat 5. Like, it was sort of a gateway for me. And uh, I think that makes it significant enough to show up on my list. Your turn. Okay, so for me... Uh, my list is not organized in any particular way outside of a few uh, increases in uh, a particular area, like uh, an intro to something, then going on into another thing that uh, expanded my understanding of it or my appreciation of it. 
But this is the exception to that rule. And it was my gateway drug, all right? And okay. the Super Mario Brothers series. And okay. I mean, I could really just put Super Mario Brothers, the original one, the the pack-in title with the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System and be it, that, be it at that. But there's something about the 2D Mario games. It's kind of br- uh, brought me back uh, several times uh, over the last 25, 30 years I've gamed. And I think it's just this, uh, the simplicity of it on the face of it. But then once you start diving down, especially once you start getting into the later games, it becomes a lot more complex and there's a lot more hidden challenges, especially the later ones. Like recently I've been playing uh, Super Mario Brothers 3D Land, which has uh, a entire second uh, uh, quest, essentially, uh, RPG style. Plus a lot of uh, hidden things that you have to hunt down to complete the game or, you know, 100% complete the game, I guess I should say. But it was also one of my first real gaming memories. I know I played games before that, but I remember getting an NES like in first grade and also playing that with my mom back in the day with Super Mario Brothers uh, two player just going back and forth. And we both sucked at it. I'm not holding anything back about that. We were both terrible at the game. We never got close to completing it, but we had a great time playing it. And we played Mario Brothers 2 and 3, same thing. We were terrible, but we had fun. But it also kind of bolded some of my taste, where I do have a little bit of a soft spot for indie platformers. Especially ones that, are, that do something a little bit different. Because my gateway drug was Mario. And Mario is a significant part of gaming culture. Because he's, I think, still the most recognizable character, period. There's only a handful that could even come close to that. Maybe Master Chief uh, with the younger generation? Minecraft Steve. Maybe, yeah. But you know, they're still few and far between. So there's that, you know, just, I guess it's just part of the history that also gives me a sweet, uh, that soft spot. But the fact that it's reinvented itself so many times over the years as well and has kept itself fresh, even though I still think the best ones are the two or the two and a half D uh, Mario games where they don't try to, you know, go too far into the puzzle platformers where it's just going from A to B, saving a princess. And maybe collecting some coins along the way and stomping on some Goombas. Mm-hmm. Not sure if that one was on your list, but there you go, right? Right. It was not. Uh, Mario, not a big part of my childhood. Um, yeah, see, I, I was uh, Nintendo, uh, well, Nintendo, then Sega, then Nintendo, then Sony, uh, until recently. Then I went back to Nintendo. Yeah, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft... Nintendo, Microsoft, Nintendo. But Mario, I mean, I've, I've never liked platformers, even as a kid. Like, I played a few, for sure, but I never liked any of them, really. So I always gravitated to other stuff. Oh, that sounds like a challenge for Game Club. <laughs> oh. All right, my turn? <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right, this next one, I actually struggled whether or not to put it on my list, which is probably going to surprise everyone when I say what it is, but it's Battletech. Um... 
you know, I've played Battletech over a thousand hours now, um, and I love the heck out of it. But when I sat down, like, I had, like, five or six that came to me, like, immediately. Yeah, And then a few others, and then a few others that when I thought about them, uh, you know, they were, they were pretty easy to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense to put on the list. And then I had a whole bunch that were, that could go on the list, but I really had to, like, process through why they would actually be on this list. And Battletech was one of the two that I really struggled whether or not it should go on the list, and ultimately I decided that it should. So Battletech, I mean, not only have I hardcore immersed myself in it, but I think that Battletech is, this is going to be the game that sort of defines this era of my life, like, the last couple of years. So, games, I sort of, in my own mind, break them down, you know, what makes them significant, I relate them to eras in my life, and what they mean to me, and what they either gave to me, or I got out of them. I first found Battletech when I was unemployed, like right there at the tail end of my unemployment before I started working at the current clinic that I am. Put a ton of time into it. I had always been a fan of the Battletech slash MechWarrior universe, and it was the first game in a long time that gave me hope, like if that makes sense. Like it was a game that I felt like delivered on its promise. It was part of a universe that I loved, and it sort of rekindled a spark in me to learn and do some new things beyond just like, like I, you know, like I'll talk about, you know, on several other games, like I mentioned with Ace Combat, like beyond just like learning something, like I have created, they're defunct now because of how, you know, I haven't done them or updated them, but I created two or three little mods for, for Battletech. And I want to continue to do that and expand beyond just balancing or adding a few new things to the game. Like, Eventually, at some point, I think it would be neat to learn how to actually do some real coding and create some, um, I don't know, AI changes or something more meaningful to the game. And Battletech has prompted me to want to do that. But also, it's a huge load of comfort with a world that is two dumpster fires, like, smashing towards each other. Like the re one the reason I've played Battletech for over a thousand hours, the the biggest reason is that I enjoy it. And it's a game that I can play in the background and listen to a podcast, or I can really focus in on and try new things, immerse myself in the story and the lore, and just keep in you know, spend time on something that I love. Um there's a series that I found in the midst of all this. Um that talks about battle Battletech. It's it's called Text Talks Battletech for anyone who's interested. It's a fucking amazing series. He creates basically documentaries about the game, like the game lore. Um he's done a couple that are like five hours long. Like they're broken up into parts, but on a whole they're like four or five hours long talking about some of the most major aspects of the of the world and it's stuff like that that i love like battletech has got such a deep intricate lore that has been built up over the course of 80 to 40 ish years that that game has been around and so it's somewhere that i can go get lost in if i want to read some you know sort of romance type stuff that's in the in the novels shows up in some of the games um if i just want to focus on the crazy stompy battle max it's there it's Game of Thrones in space before Game of Thrones was ever a thing. Um, it's just an amazing world to get lost in. And so, you know, it, it, when I really sat down and thought about, like, does it deserve to be on this list? Well, it it I created my very first ever mods for it, and it's got me wanting to learn how to properly 
code for games. Um, I uh, have invested a shitload of time in it. I enjoy every time I play it, and it can meet a bunch of my different gaming needs. And when I, you know, in 10 years, if I have this retrospective again, regardless of whether or not we're still doing the show, like, at some point, I will have this my own retrospective to think about these games again. Battletech is going to show up as a significant game for me. And so, as the most recent game that could go on this list for me, ultimately, I decided it had to be here because of how much it, it means to me now. So, Battletech, shoehorned it in there for, like, the, I don't know, 20th episode. Yeah, watch, well, you got me play, playing Battletech again, but then again, I think that was more after playing MechWarrior 5, it's like, yeah, I want to play a good mech game now. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to have a, a more in-depth conversation with you about your feelings about the mod, because yeah. you were you also using uh, the... Battletech Extended Commander's Edition. Yeah, and I think I started in the early uh, years as well, so uh, slowly building up, and uh, I had to restart because I did one of the difficulty options that kind of screwed me over because of how I play. Yeah, it was the... Oh, what was it? Whenever you assemble mechs, they don't come with equipment. Yeah, and it screwed me over because I use a lot of machine guns, and I pretty much... if. It's not on a Tundra. I'm using a, a fire starter right now. Yeah. And that destroys a lot of equipment. It's it's interesting. This is, I think, much more talk for another episode and possibly when you get farther. But how much that game changes with the mod when you hit sort of the different eras. Um, yeah, like right now, the, I, I'm still in the early era, but I'm also starting to see like more vehicles than I did when I first started playing. Yeah, you're you're in the fourth succession war era and then there's the post succession war era and then there's the helm memory core era and then there's the clan invasion and then the post clan invasion and there are marked differences between each era if you're in the inner sphere as opposed to just hanging out in the periphery yeah which is the it's outer insane. map right yeah yeah see i need to head towards the inner sphere uh right now i'm on yeah. the edges but also there's quite the difficulty jump at times because uh, the Battletech has the the and we're way off base, but what the hell have it where? What else is new? Uh, there's was like a full skull difference, possibly. Uh, basically, yeah. uh, uh, missions are raided between one or sorry a half uh, to five skulls, and the uh, the harder they are, the more skulls they have. Well. There's a variance where if something's like two skulls, it could be somewhere between one and three. Well, I hit a couple where it three skulls must be uh, fucking insane because I pulled up on a lance uh, in a battle and it was all heavy mechs and I had two mediums and two lights. That was, yeah. that was not fun. Yeah, just wait till you get the clan invasion. The skulls mean nothing. Goody. It's like, it's, it's, uh, what is it? Um, the goggles oh, do nothing. The points don't matter. Oh, uh, whose line is it anyway? Yeah, whose line is it anyway is where the points don't matter. Like, the mm-hmm. skulls don't matter. And they, they, like, warn you of that. It's like, yeah, we don't know anything about these guys. This mission is definitely underrated, overprepare. Mm-hmm. So, I'll talk, I'll talk more about that. Cause I haven't talked about it on the show since I've done the clan invasion. All right, well, uh, shall we get back to the actually the topic at hand? Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned mods, because mine is c- the gateway to mods. The Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind. 
but it's I'm kind of infamous for my absolute fucking hatred of Skyrim. And it's because I've played two Elder Scrolls games before it. Elder Scrolls 3 and 4, Morrowind and Oblivion. And I've just seen the downward trend and really the dumbing down of the series. Where, essentially, it feels like to me Skyrim putting mods on it is polishing a turd. While mods in Morrowind, even though the game is janking as hell and... Some of the mechanics have not aged well, but it's more putting a cherry on top to me in Morrowind, where it has a stronger game world, it has stronger writing. Uh, If you could get over the fact that very early on you're rolling dice in the background, almost uh, tabletop style whenever you're doing combat, where where, uh, uh, you could hit somebody with a sword and it does no damage. Even though it looks like it should, because yeah, you know, it's essentially a 3D D and D instead of proper 3D combat like we are used to now. It's still a very good game with a, a lot of humor, but also it's the Elder Scrolls series has kind of also let itself get a little bit caught up on voice acting, dictating just how much uh, storytelling they're wanting to do because. Uh, the Morrowind, it has it where a character could say a couple paragraphs worth of dialogue. But if they were reading it, uh, or voice acting it, it'd be like 10-15 minutes for one option on uh, on the dialogue tree. If, uh, <laughs> if you've got five hours to spare, and I'm not kidding, five hours to spare, boy have I got an interesting YouTube documentary type thing for you i've watched i've watched this over the course of the last three days it's four hours 57 minutes and 57 seconds of it's called elder skulls for oblivion retrospective but it talks a lot about morrowind and skyrim as well it's it came out in 2016 mm-hmm. or this person made it in 2016 so there's some stuff that has quite obviously changed since then and the ending is hilarious because it's like oh sweet baby child (laughs) if only you knew yeah because this is before fallout 76 and 1400 re-releases of skyrim and before the creation club incident i think yeah where they Um, talk about how the bright future of uh, bethesda right yeah and he talks about the elder scrolls 6 like throughout the whole thing and i'm like oh sweetie (laughs) oh but, you know, it was 2016. We didn't know, you know. But other than that, like, it's extremely spot on. And it talks about good points and faults and, like, huge issues with world building for all three games and, and um, you know, stuff that they got right. And it's, I mean, it's five fucking hours of a guy talking about the Elder Scrolls Sort of the, the, the 3D trilogy, yeah, def- I guess. Cause... I, I'm definitely going to have to get a uh, link to you from that or for that one because that does sound actually very interesting because, like I said, The Elder Scrolls, it, it's... Morrowind's the first one I sunk... Or first RPG I sunk a significant amount of time into, all right? Uh, mm-hmm. I did not get into RPGs until much later. <clears throat> and uh, Morrowind, it uh, got me. And it's not just... <clears throat> Sorry, it's not just the story, because honestly, I kind of got off the beaded uh, the 
uh, the path and started going down all these little rabbit holes that Morrowind really excelled at, where the different guilds actually you know, meant something, where they had actually interesting storylines instead of, you know... Uh, well, uh, uh, fine. You're the, you're the uh, the Grand Wizard. Oh, sorry, unfortunate name. Um, <laughs> he he literally he talks about that. He takes like thirty minutes or an hour to talk about the four main or the four guild quest lines in Oblivion, like in detail, like what he thinks from from worst to best they are, and talks about that as a huge problem. Like, yeah, like being the the guild master of these doesn't mean anything. Because you can be a barbarian who's the head of the Mages Guild, and then pre- presents like some other, you know, all potential alternatives and way- better ways to handle it, like um, allowing you to participate, but not as like if you're not a magic character, like you can participate so that the content's not wholly locked off from someone, but you don't become the Archmage at the end, like you just went along and helped complete like the grand, you know, quest line or whatever. I mean, how? Uh... And more when they actually still had the balls that you had significant choices. And once you made those choices, it locked off parts of the game from you. Yeah. Accessibility is also like another hour of this, about another half an hour where he talks about like, you know, a, a, something that, you know, uh, yeah, Skyrim, yeah. Skyrim and Oblivion both do is like accessibility and like, where is it good and where is it bad? And how does it take away from the overall intent of the game and world building it's it's crazy i loved this thing this this little i I mean it feels like a documentary like someone put together like a documentary and and talked about it um i'm gonna go ahead and slide this in i was sitting here thinking like the reason that i watched a five-hour thing on the elder scrolls oblivion and uh another thing that was like i think two hours long that was talking about the history of Elder Scrolls just in general, like the entire series, um, was that one of the games on my list, which is my favorite game of all time, is Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. Um, you know, I don't, like, for me, that was like just the per, like, it was like the, like the perfect storm of the, the age that I was, the time in my life, like sort of how I was building my identity and, the for me i've always felt like oblivion is the perfect balance in the elder scrolls universe um and yeah, i think in you know I, I do i'm a lot more lenient on oblivion than i was because when it first came out after playing it i don't get me wrong i still played the fuck out of it as well uh there was something that i felt was lost when they started going to like map markers and also the you know went to voice acting and had you know six people that they got from the uh, from around the office than Sean Bean and Patrick Stewart. Right. I mean, like, for me, like I said, like, I, I this was when I was forming my my identity as part of, like, I like campy, silly stuff. So it's like, oh, the six voices, haha, like, that's funny. And so, like, I liked that. It gave it charm. I like the map marker. I totally understand if someone doesn't. 
for sure. Like, I don't think that people who would prefer to not have it are, like, stupid or whatever. But I like it, especially for the main stuff. Oblivion has got a lot of little things, little quests that you can find in the world that have no map markers. And they come from dialogues or books or whatever. So there are things to find and explore. Whereas Skyrim basically has none of that. There might be some stuff in there somewhere that I don't remember. But even on... Like, when we talked about Skyrim, like, I hate Skyrim's dungeon design, and I dislike how little there is to actually just find and explore in the world. Oh, but there's procedural uh, map gener- or procedural quest generation. You can go to one of a couple dozen uh, bandit camps, kill them, and come back for, uh, yeah, a few coins. Yes. So, yeah. But I feel like... They made I- up for it, totally. I, I, but I feel like Oblivion had the best balance. Like, there was still a lot in Oblivion. Like, you know, you talk about the dumbing down of the series. Like, Morrowind has got so much shit. But, like, in a good way. Like, I love all the weapons of Morrowind. I miss, like, having, you know, throwing star. Like, the entire throwing weapons category. I, I missed having, like, crossbows, which did come back in a DLC for Skyrim. But whatever. Like, that's... You know, like, I miss some of those things. But you all... But Oblivion really focused down onto some stuff to... It going for um, quality over quantity, and I, I think that that helped the game in some ways. You still had the magic system where you could create your own spells, which is nice. Um, I like that there is still like a, a system for repairing armor, and it's a little more simplified to be sure, but it's there where it's not there at all in Skyrim. Like, you know, it, it feel, feels to me like the perfect balance. I think Oblivion has some of the best quests in as well, like in terms of like. Um, interesting, fun quests. Like, the one that always comes to mind is is for the uh, Dark Brotherhood, where you go to the party and, like, kill everyone, and there's so many creative ways that you can kill people at the party, convincing them to kill each other, and things like that. Like, but there's, uh, I can't remember the name of the quest, but it's it's the one where you, you show up into a town, and there's, like, a crazy conspiracy theorist, and he pays you to stalk people and uh, see if they're spying on him, which they're not but you can lie to him and tell him that they are. He tries to get you to kill them. Um, and depending on what you do, like he can go kill them. You can get the people to kill each other or to go kill the guy. I think his name is like Fineros or something. Try to go kill him or you can report him to the guard. Like and those, those are like two big ones that come to mind. There's a, a quest where you go into someone's dreams and solve a bunch of puzzles for them. Um, there's uh, uh, the painting. The painting, yes. Uh, what I, I thought the painting. The, the well, it, getting a little off base from my poll, but uh, I think uh, the quest in Oblivion are a lot more fresh to me because I played it a lot later. So I don't remember as much questing in Morrowind, even though I do recall there were really good quests as well. The um, uh, guild quest overall in both games were very strong. Which I think that's part of why I actively dislike Skyrim so much and why I don't like where the series has gone. And I have absolutely zero faith in Bethesda for the sixth one. Is it felt like the uh, the guilds became meaningless in Skyrim? Yeah. Aside from maybe the Companions, which is Skyrim's equivalent of the Fighters Guild, basically all of the guilds revolve around... Go to dungeon, kill things, leave. And for the companions, that kind of makes sense since they're a fighter's guild. But all the rest of them, it really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, but I, I don't, don't want to talk about Skyrim. Yeah, this isn't about yeah, Skyrim. yeah I just remember, like in Oblivion, the uh, Mage's Guild 
uh, people uh, were undermining the Mages Guild from the inside. And then the, uh, I believe the Fighters Guild had a a mercenary guild that they had to deal with. Yep. The Dark uh, Dark Brotherhood uh, Guild uh, quest line was fucking amazing. Yeah. Probably the best one in the entire, in the whole game. The, The Dark Brotherhood quest line. I should say. Yeah, and I just wish I remember more and more when's quest lines because it's just... It, but like I said, a lot of that was... I just uh, went off on my own for quite a while and just explored. Yeah, I've played Morrowind for a couple hundred hours. I've played Skyrim for, I don't know, three or four hundred hours probably. Um, I've played Oblivion for... And I don't have an accurate count. I have a picture somewhere. If I can find it, I'll get it to have, like, to go with the show notes or something. Um, but I have a picture I took of my TV, like, a long time ago. For my main Oblivion character, I had played something like 1,200 hours. And that's just one character, like, my main character. I've played a bunch more. I've got, like, 60-something hours on Steam. I owned it on PC, like, PC DVD or whatever. And I played through it, you know, there. I might have 2,000 hours in Oblivion. Like, Oblivion is probably my most played game of all time. And that's without, like, mods and stuff. Like, I mean, I enjoy mods in Oblivion. I've played Oblivion a couple of times through with mods. You know, I love the modding community. They've done so much with that game. Um, But, like, this is just base game and then the expansion slash DLC stuff. Um, And, I mean, Oblivion is not a perfect game. Like, DLC, like, the horse armor. Yeah, which technically I bought because I got the Game of the Year edition. yeah. But, you know, the the horse armor, and a lot of people don't like the campiness, and there's certainly a lot of back and forth on whether or not certain mechanics and, you know, dubbing down, like, is it good or bad? But I love Oblivion. I, I'm playing it again right now. Like, I, well, I mean, not right now, but I downloaded it because I started thinking about it for the show, and I was like, you know what? I want to play through Oblivion. And so I've played for, like, three hours in the past week, and I'm, I don't know if I'll do another playthrough, but I'm still loving it. And I know everything about that game. It has no secrets, like, left to me, I don't think. Yeah, which I'm just sitting here looking at the quest line. And some of these feel familiar, some of them don't. Uh, like, to give you an idea of sort of the world building, uh, you start off as a prisoner in Morrowind, because that's Bethesda's thing. Uh, and pretty much as soon as you leave the first town, a wizard falls from the sky. Because, <laughs> Yeah. And he's got the jump... I forget what they're called, but the, the big the, jumping The scroll scrolls. of Icarian Flight. And for someone that doesn't know the story of Icarus, well, <laughs> that's uh, one way to learn it, right? Yep, I remember being like a uh, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, something like that, and be like, ooh, what's this? <laughs> so. Yeah, and I actually yeah. never really got around to playing uh, much of the expansions. I didn't have them back in the day. Which expansions? For Morrowind? For Morrowind. I have, n- I've played one of the expansions, um, and not the other one. I've played the one where you go to, like, the frozen place that has werewolves. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the Blood names Moon. of them. Blood Moon. Blood Moon. And I've the played Blood Moon. I've never played the Tribunal. Which, uh, the Tribunal, uh, from everything I've heard, was the weaker of the two, where it's, uh, takes place in pretty much, uh, a one city, but you're actually hunting the Dark Brotherhood, uh, and actually going against them. Which is interesting. Oh, that is interesting. But, yeah. I mean, I could talk about Oblivion forever, probably. I love that game. And I, I was, like I said, when you started, when you said Morrowind, I was like, mm, 
Am I going to talk about Oblivion now, or am I going to wait? And it just, it, nah, it's, it's the time to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have my problems with uh, Oblivion. It's not a terrible game. It just, I really preferred Morrowind just because it, it felt more immersive. There was, uh, uh, it feels a lot better to be told, okay, now you need to follow this path south out of the city and watch uh, for uh, a landslide or a, a, a log down across the trail. Fall, go downhill over uh, at that point, and you're, that's where uh, something's hidden. Instead of following the map marker, which I realize map markers also make it a lot easier to pick up and play again. Instead of having to have an entire notebook of notes like I did back in the day of what to do where. But, that, yeah. but that's also changing taste, and who knows? Maybe looking back at it uh, when we eventually work our way back to through the Elder Scrolls series. Uh, it'll be off-putting to me. Yeah, I've been thinking about going back and playing Morrowind as well. Um, and I've never played Daggerfall, which was Elder Scrolls 2. I never played Daggerfall. Yeah, Daggerfall has a lot of procedural generation. I think Daggerfall is the largest video game world yeah, but, ever. Yeah, but it's also it, cheating it that- because it's, a, like I said, a lot, a lot of procedural generation. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I have heard good things about its scale, because they have, like, cities that actually feel like cities with uh-huh. hundreds of buildings and thousands of people. I mean, yeah, procedure generation, for sure. Like, pros and cons to that, but that scale would be interesting. Yeah, and you can get Daggerfall for free. Yeah, it's uh, technically abandoned where at this point. Uh, it, Daggerfall's map is 62,000 square miles, which, to give you an idea, hang on, I'm just scrolling down, uh, Guild Wars, the entire map, or Guild Wars Nightfall, is 15,000. Yeah, I think Oblivion is only, like, 20-something square miles. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the it's kind of funny how quickly it scales up, because I'm I'm looking at a, a couple, at, at a map comparison. So, the crew, uh, the original crew, it's 1,900 square miles for the entire United States. Yeah. Then fuel at 5,560 uh, 5, mi- square miles, which actually I'm not too familiar with. Uh, then Guild Wars Nightfall at 15,000. Then Elder Scrolls Daggerfall at 62,000. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But then again, it's also covering, I'm pretty sure, the area that Morrowind covered as well and uh, Oblivion. In some uh, retrospects, uh, yeah, all, it covers the, a yeah, huge part of the map. Yeah, all the uh, Elder Scrolls series essentially take place in this one area. But if I recall correctly, there's like a splintered timeline because of Daggerfall's ending. I think it's Daggerfall that made it where all these weird things happen at once. But, I have no idea. I'm out of my depth on that one. I'm just looking at this. Uh, Continuing on, uh, Just Calls 3, which is also a pretty big map, 400 square miles. Uh, Burnout Paradise, which uh, kind of ironic because I'm listening to Paradise City. Uh, is it 200 square miles? Star Wars Galaxy, also 200. Uh, Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, 84. World of Warcraft, uh, 80, but this is an older article, so it's missing a couple of expansions. But yeah, it gives you an idea of game worlds, huh? Yeah, you do get to run into the argument for all of these games, though, of like... Uh, Oblivion uh, was uh, 16 square miles. 
With Skyrim you, 15. You, you get into the, the idea of, like, well, you know, how how deep or how shallow is the area? Like, you know, it's impressive in one way, but what what is there there in the other? And one of the biggest complaints I've heard from Daggerfall is it's like, yeah, when you're going from place to place, there's not a lot to do unless you're going to a quest area. Because, you know, like you said, procedural narration, there's not a lot out there. Particularly other back than, in the day. Yeah. So Where nowadays, if they did a procedural generation of that much, uh, they would throw in a lot of random elements, a lot of random things popping up. 18 million collectibles. Mm-hmm. So many bare asses. Indeed. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I want to go back and play Marland as well at some point. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I will eventually. I just don't know when. And as, as someone who's older and has played a lot more tabletop stuff now and has more patience... I could probably deal with Morrowind more than I did when I was a kid. And even as a kid, I played it, like I said, probably a couple hundred hours. I never beat it. I mostly just wandered around and, like, explored and and killed things and stole stuff and sold people their pillows back because, you know, that was fun. But there was a lot of its complexity that I didn't understand because I was too young. And I haven't really played it since, so yeah, I need to play it again. Yeah, and uh, pretty much all the Elder Scrolls series short of Skyrim. Uh, I played out of, I had essentially a main base, but in Morrowind, I had this just expansive uh, house that I had a mod for that was just full to the brim by the time I was uh, done of it, of just all this random shit I've collected. Yeah. All right. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything else to add at this point, I don't think. I mean, like I said, I could keep talking, but. Well, well um, you're going to so keep I... talking by going to the, your next entry. I was going to say, okay, that works. Um, so next on my list is uh, one of the only other ones that I struggled whether or not to put on the list. But significant does not always mean good. So EVE Online. Uh-oh. EVE Online <laughs> is another hugely significant game in my life um, that I've had an experience with. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've said multiple times, like, you know, on the record. Uh, that it's the only game I've ever been addicted to and really had problems with. I've come back to it a couple of times, you know, coming back to it, uh, last year. Was it late last year or early this year? Yes. I don't, I don't remember. Within like the last year, I, I came back to it and, and played it again and didn't feel the same pull as I did before. Part of that is that Eve Online has just gone downhill for years, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, when they sort of jumped ship from a subscription-based MMO to a free-to-play MMO, they really upset the already tenuous power balance within the game. They keep ruining stuff and making it harder and harder to play and enjoy the game as a, as either a solo or a small group player, which is how I prefer to play um, at this point in time. And so it wasn't really fun for me anymore. And so once my subscription ran out, I didn't keep playing as a free-to-play player. But... You know, EVE Online, I have played that game on and off for about 10 years. Um, I started playing when I was in college uh, in, like, 2008, 2009-ish. Played off and on while I was in college, took a break, played it more hardcore for a couple of years, took a break, then played it again hardcore for a couple of years. Well, when we first started doing the podcast, like, in the... Uh, you know, 50, you know, maybe 25 to 75 episode range, like somewhere in there. 
you know, I, I played it pretty hardcore for a while and I had all my Eve stories and, you know, I have told my stories about joining a corp and working your you know, way things up going, it, uh, working my way up and then screwing them over and then fucking them over and stealing all of their stuff, like billions and billions and billions of in-game dollars worth of stuff. And then just like leaving the game for a while and then coming back and having like messages of hate and like old bounties on my head and stuff. And that, uh, did, are they even still good at that point? Oh yeah. The bounty is good forever until redeemed. Um, by, you know, by being killed. Although, I mean, I just, like, had someone kill me to get the bounty taken off of my head, and they got, like, a hundred million credits, <laughs> or a hundred million isk, and then I didn't have a bounty on me anymore. EVE Online is one of the most interesting, like, game worlds to read about. Yeah, because yeah, it has, is like, one of my favorite games to read about, but I tried playing it, and I just could not get into it. And it's not because it's a bad game, it's just kind of counter to what a lot I'm looking for. EVE is a fucking job. Like, the joke has been made, and I've made the joke, that it's a spreadsheet simulator. And I do have old spreadsheets from... I mean, they're no longer valid because of so many changes that have been made to the manufacturing systems in the game. But, I mean, I did have spreadsheets, but it's a fucking job. Like, if you work your way up in, like, a, a larger corporation, or even a mid-sized corporation, to where that you're managing something, it's like you've got to coordinate... Like, for me, I was an industrialist, because, you know, that's what I do. Mine, mine the rocks and make the bullets for the other people to shoot. Uh, and so, you know, I would work my way up in every corp that I ever joined to being some type of manager on the industrial side. But that's a fucking job, because you got to coordinate the stuff, and then you show up to mine the asteroids, and you're directing people, you know, you direct traffic, you got to watch over things, order people around, make sure you're hitting all the bonuses right, then you got to bring it all back, you got to make sure everybody gets paid for the time and the effort that they contributed, break down the resources, decide what you're going to build, what are you going to sell, what are you going to send to the corporate headquarters, make sure you pay your taxes, like... And at a certain point in my life, like, that was really intriguing to me. Because I had more time than I had, um, you know, more time to pour into this than I had other stuff going on in my life. You know, just my priorities were different. And I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed contributing to that. But as time went on, it started to be a detriment to my life because I was dedicating all my time and energy to that instead of my real stuff, like college and my relationship and my family and so on. So... You know, I've dropped it a couple of times and trying to come back to it and play it more casually. You just can't do anymore because so many big corporations, just like in real life, control everything in the game. And so if you kind of pop up and you see like a little hole and you try and fill that gap, you will immediately get shut down by bigger corporations going so far as to have kill orders placed on you so that they come after you. Or have mercenary corporations that, like, that's what they do. They wage proxy wars for larger corporations in the game. Have them come after you and your little corporation. And the last time I quit, like, that's exactly what happened. Like, I joined a small corp that was, like, a dad and his son and a couple of their friends and a retired guy who kind of reminded me a lot of you, honestly. Like, he was a, a, a an older disabled... He was, like, in his 50s, so not, you know, I know you're not that old, but... He was an older, disabled, retired guy who just played Eve and hung out and liked to, ch to chat with people. And then, like, a couple of other people that I, that joined. And we were just mining and having a good time and making stuff and selling it and occasionally going and exploring stuff. And then, like, 
we started to encroach on some other corporation's territory. And they hired a fucking mercenary corp and ruined our fun. <laughs> and so I, I just quit playing after that. And I haven't played it since. I keep meaning to like, I should log on. And if they're still playing, like just give all of my stuff to them. Cause I have a lot of stuff. I was managing, <laughs> I was managing three Yeah, you fucked over a couple corporations. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I was managing three space stations for these guys, and I just was like, I can't take this mercenary corp shit anymore. I'm out, guys. And I quit. Like, And I, like, not even, like, their stuff. The shared stuff they can get to, but just my own stuff. I have, you know, like, yeah, I fucked over a couple of corporations, and I have all that stuff just sitting in my inventory. Like, I could, if I really wanted to, play the game, quote, unquote, for free, because you can, you know, use the in-game currency to buy the premium subscription and it's you know that's that's how you get all these crazy figures of like thousands or hundreds of thousand dollars lost in combat because there's a way to translate the in-game currency to real world money because people can buy it's called plex which lets you get um you know premium time you can buy that with in-game currency so people will buy that for real money and then sell it in the game to bankroll stuff quickly you know i i have enough money as long as the uh, Plex inflation hasn't gone up too high to play for a couple of months, you know, air quotes for free. I just don't want to. It's just not fun anymore. It's too hard to play as a, a small, you know, a small group or a solo player. And I'm just not that big into stuff like that anymore. I don't, I don't, I've got my friend group. Thank you very much. Um, if something happens to them, you know, I'll find another Discord group that's got people in it that I really care about and can connect with that way. I don't. I don't want to go on an MMO and do it that way anymore. I'm a grumpy old man. Damn it. <laughs> so yeah, Eve Online. Uh, I have had a roller coaster of a relationship with that game, and I'm not gonna say I'll never play it again because I might. But right now, I don't think I'm ever gonna play it again. But it certainly was significant in my life. Uh, once again, things kind of line up rather nicely because it's not Eve, but my first MMO I sank a fair amount of time into. EverQuest. Uh, EverQuest is one of two MMOs I spent about five or six years on, the other being World of Warcraft. But EverQuest, it's still around, technically. But it's changed so much that it's not the game that I used to play. And that's going to come up uh, at least one other time. Where... The the world got too small by just uh, instant teleportation. It, EverQuest, when I originally started to play it, it was a very social game where you had your guild, but you also had people you kept running into because the world was slow to get around. So you would specialize in a particular area of the map and get used to it because... To get from one side of the continent to the other was an hour of running before uh, getting, or, or unless you were able to get some sort of quicker method of travel, which was a player-driven economy. And because of that, I forged some friendships with people that I just would keep seeing over and over again uh, to the point that I still occasionally hear from a couple of them. Uh, but it was, like I said, it was the first MMO I really sp- spent a lot of time with, but also kind of set the tone of what I expect an MMO, of, uh, an MMO to be, a living, breathing world, but not work like 
Eve is, right? Yeah. And that's I think that's kind of the difference where I'm talking about a lot of the same parallel yeah, a lot of parallel things, but there's not the overcomplication of all the corporate stuff on top of it. Don't get me wrong, there was guild drama, there uh, were people screwing other over other people, but it was not the highlight of trailers. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think that's really where the difference is. And also EverQuest, it it suffered from almost negative power creep, which sounds weird. But uh, how how they dealt with, I think they're up to like 15 expansions now. Uh, what they did was they still have power creep, but there's not so much power creep to where doing the trash areas of the nest expansion completely invalidated the first expansion. To the point where... At least when I played, this could be completely different now, and probably is actually, where they kept expansions relevant for years by making it so that even the trash stuff that you'd get by just leveling up would not be better than the raid stuff until you got to new raid stuff. But the jump in power from the previous raid stuff, or from the new raid stuff to the trash raid stuff, wasn't quite enough, so you still had to do at least some of the old raid stuff. And it made it so that if you were behind the curve, you didn't have to compete nearly as much with uh, other guilds on the server. And that sounds weird to say, but all the raids were open world. So with some notable exceptions, you could sit and watch raids take place in-game in real time and just observe or if uh, you want to be a bit of a dick screw someone over but that also builds up a reputation where there were some essentially prank wars between a couple guilds on my server thankfully i was not part of it or part of the guilds outside and watched the hilarity where there they were setting up for a raid and somebody would pull the raid boss on top of them <laughs> then the other guild uh, that the first person was part of, they would have their raid screwed over. Then they would try to snipe one another's uh, raid bosses, and it was all perfectly allowed because it was just you know, how things were. And I think that's where I kind of lost a little bit with the uh, World of Warcraft was there was so much that was instanced and cut off from the overall world where outside of a few raid uh, uh, world raid bosses there was no sense of urgency or of uh, okay who's on this particular boss just spawned we need to go now now go 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 and it just uh, feels like it detracts from the world a bit I mean on the flip side having to be you know uh, at least contactable <laughs> uh, at odd hours if you're a, a key player of the guild I was not is definitely not my idea of fun these days but it made the game a lot more social and a lot more uh, uh, where the guild was uh, that you're a part of a lot more meaningful than just a name tag and that's kind of where uh, EverQuest also fell apart on me was that uh, uh, over the years uh, and I moved through a few guilds the last one I was part of I was not part of the central clique and I was kind of cut off from everything so that social aspect came around to bite me in the ass uh, later on. But I still kind of miss it. I still kind of miss, uh, you know, 
uh, leveling up and seeing and forging friendships with people I just happened to be in the area with. And that's just something that I never got in WoW. That's something I never really uh, have seen happen again. But EverQuest itself has changed so much, uh, even in the years I played, where they made the world a lot smaller just by instant teleportation through different areas. And every time they would add an expansion, they would make it uh, the world essentially smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where a lot of what I loved when I first played uh, even did not exist by the time I had stopped playing. So there was also that kind of that nostalgia as well for me. But it's you know something that was very transformative to how I played games and made me a fair bit more social. Right. So I guess that's kind of my Eve, huh? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. My turn? Yeah, only mine had less spreadsheets. Okay, you're up. <laughs> right, okay. So next on my list is Freelancer. Um, I've, I super vividly remember the first time I ever played Freelancer. I was in um, an Algebra class, in Algebra 1. And I had this friend that I was talking to about games, and he was telling me about this crazy game where that you could you flew spaceships around. And this is the first time I ever heard of mods that that I that I knew that they existed. And you could modify the game to put Star Wars and Star Trek ships in it. And I was like, "Holy crap! That sounds amazing! What is this game called?" And he told me it was Freelancer, and he told me he would let me borrow it. Because um, I had no idea where to get a copy, and this was back far enough in the olden days where it wasn't quite so easy. Like, you know, the internet was a thing, obviously, still, but it wasn't really easy to buy things online. Digital distribution wasn't really a thing. And so he, he let me borrow his copy of Freelancer, and then I was a little dick, and I never gave it back to him, and he moved to a different school. Whoops. So technically, I stole his copy of Freelancer. Uh, and I still have it. Uh, so, Josh, if you're listening by some miracle and you want your copy of Freelancer back, let me know and I'll mail it to you because I have uh, a digital ver- – like, I, I've got it digitally. Yeah, only, what, um, a 20-year loan? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I if he does contact you, you need to give him a second game just for uh, yeah, interest. I'll give you a game on Steam for interest, yeah. But, but I, I, I borrowed it game. from him and I never gave it back. And Freelancer is fr- Freelancer is a close like it's in the running like Oblivion like runs away with my favorite game of all time but Obli- but Freelancer is in the running for you know another one of the the games to be like you know a podium finisher you know there's only a few others that I would even consider putting up there on my favorite games of all time and I think that this is just another combination of like perfect storm in my life of like where I was as as a kid and again like. This was when I was first starting to play PC games, and I first started playing, like, the Command & Conquer series and things like that. It was, like, Command & Conquer, um, you know, Red Alert, which is in the Command & Conquer series, but sort of a distinct sub-property, whatever. You know, Command & Conquer, Red Alert, um, the Lord of the Rings RTS game, and Freelancer. Like, those were, like, where I sort of started playing PC games a long, long time ago, and... um, it was the first game that I ever heard about mods and that I ever downloaded mods for. Like, we had dial-up at the time, and I remember, like, leaving the download running overnight for multiple nights to get the rebalance mod that had, like, all the Star Wars and the Star Trek ships in it. And 
just all kinds of stuff that added, you know, things to the game and, uh, fixed bugs and, um, the mod manager and just like, I remember all of that vividly with nostalgia. And it was one of the last hurrahs that I did for my YouTube channel, um, before it just became sort of a, a parking spot for, um, VGL podcast stuff was I did a video essay talking about freelancer. Well, I had why... an entire playthrough of freelancer on mine. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And that was kind of what inspired me to do it was your playthrough on freelancer. But, you know, I, I did a video essay on why I liked freelancer and some of the themes within the game and stuff that really stuck out to me. And, um, you know, that was, like I said, that was one of my last hurrahs of trying to actually have, uh, a YouTube channel that had even just like, you know, a small following or whatever. And I mean, I, I've loved Freelancer. I've, I've played through it a ton of times. I've played through it with a bunch of mods. I've played through it stock. Um, I've played through it basically on God mode. Um, I even played the online mode, which at one point was like dead, dead. I think it's got like sort of a cult presence at this point, but you know, pl- it was like one of the first games that I played online in that way. Um, with a persistent character, but it wasn't really like MMO like. Yeah, I played a but... little bit of the multiplayer on uh, Freelancer, but I caught it right at the end of where people were actually playing without yeah, them being gods uh, uh, in space, essentially. Although, yeah. yeah, why does God need a spaceship? <laughs> Seems illogical, Captain. Um, underrated Star Trek movie there, uh, I think. But anyways, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I played a ton of Freelancer, and I, I don't know if I'll ever play it again. Like, that's the thing. Like, I like Freelancer, um, but it's a very old game that shows its age worse than probably any other game that I have gone back to try and play, at least so far. Um, and so I don't know if I'll ever go back and play it again. But yeah, it will always have a place in my heart. Yeah, there's a lot of obvious breaks in the dialogue. Uh, we're part of blank faction. We don't own this space. What we take a significant interest, or we own this place, right? Yeah. Um, but loved it. Still love it. All right. Yeah. Uh, Your turn again. Yeah, it had a kind of an all-star cast of uh, voice actors uh, for the main story, but then nothing else. It's yeah, kind of- John Reese Davis and George Decay. Uh those were the two biggest ones I think, but uh I remember see freelancer video game. I remember there being quite a few others. Let's see. Uh Jennifer Hale. Was she um Oh, I can't remember her name. Damn it. The security lady. Uh Junie. Yeah, Junie. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Hale, Junie, John Reese Davis, which was uh Tobias, which was like the father figure. George Decay was Lord Hakata. Michael T. Weiss, Aurelian. Maybe some more. If I went and dug through the whole cast, I'm not going to dig through the whole yeah, cast. Yeah, I mean, right that's now. the ones that pop up as uh, credited cast and obviously uh, notable, huh? Yeah. But your turn. Okay, so next up for me uh, is kind of my intro to JRPGs. And if Anita was listening in, it, she would probably uh, just rip the mic uh, away from me and just start talking instead. But Pokemon Blue, this was one of the first games I got for the Game Boy. And it's actually one of the few I actually can say I 100%ed it because I actually got the entire Pokedex on my copy of Pokemon Blue. 
took me ages to do, but I actually did it. But it kind of introduced also some of the concepts of JRPGs, you know, overall leveling, uh, the idea that it's more gameplay than story. Don't get me wrong, there is a story in Pokemon, but for the early Pokemon games, you know, it's kind of tenuous and just... You know, okay, now now go go make a, a, an electric crap fight a, a, a bird, right? Sounds like a good time. <laughs> but it, it's more of the intro to JRPGs than anything else that it introduced core concepts of the genre instead of just the fact that it was Pokemon, but it's more the fact that it was a gateway onto my next entry, which I'll get to in a little bit. But also, like I said, one of the few games that I 100%ed, and I also played with a fair amount of, I think, three or four people in my high school played uh, against and with them. And it was, it was kind of that perfect storm of late 90s where there was all uh, the uh, rumors and everything uh, for Pokemon as well. Where everybody was talking about, you know, where can you get Mew? Where, you know, how can you get Mew? That sort of thing. Or all these little uh, ideas of hidden strategies and different ways to play the game that uh, kind of uh, can't really happen as easily now just because the internet, right? Yeah. <clears throat> the internet has, uh, to say changed the way we play games, it would be a- an understatement, mm-hmm. but... Uh, there's uh, a, a... well. Just to give you an idea of just how crazy it could be. And some of them I'd never even heard back in the day. But just uh, go check out Did You Know Pokemon uh, Rumors. Uh, especially uh, the ones uh, focusing on Gen 1 and Gen 2. Where there's some crazy shit. Uh, especially uh, stuff that revolves around what at the time turned out to just be cut content. But people speculate like Hill just because, you yeah, it nobody really knew it was this thing that came from Japan that really just took off like wildfire. And like I said, it was also just the fact that, you know, it's the entry to the JRPGs to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Pokemon was one that went on my uh, list, um, but ultimately was eliminated for other stuff. Yeah. I only really played uh, Pokemon blue and then I played Pokemon gold and I beat both, but I didn't really get as uh, enraptured with gold, I played it and uh, played a bit with the uh, friends, but it, uh, I think it was just starting to, uh, to uh, drift apart as well. So, and Pokemon is a, a, uh, uh, a social game uh, to some respect. So having nobody to play with, it made it a lot less enjoyable to me. Because it just didn't scratch that itch. So I moved on to other things. Yeah. But it's definitely you know, something that uh, introduced me to a complete, essentially, genre of games. The JRPGs. Like, nothing else that I played. Yeah. I don't I don't have any JRPGs that made it on my list. But I have several that were in my short list. And a couple in my leftover list. So, I don't know. Wait, no. Just one in my leftover list. But still. I had, I had several that just didn't quite make mm-hmm. the cut. Um, okay. My turn? Yeah. Um, so this is one that's a little bit of an, an oddity, but 
at least I think, compared to most of the rest of my list. But uh, Gears of War, specifically the first Gears of War. Um, I played the series, um, it, the original trilogy, and um, one of the spinoff games. And then obviously, you know, we're playing Gears Tactics for Game Club, but the original Gears of War has a special place in my heart because it's at a time in my life when I don't even know if they are still a thing anymore. MLG? Is MLG still a thing? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, back in the, I guess, mid-2000s when Gears of War came out, MLG, which is Major League Gaming for anyone who doesn't know... um, was making a big push to to be to start legitimizing esports, and so you saw tournaments pop up all over the place for Halo and Call of Duty, and every game was trying to get an MLG tournament. Yeah, and Gears yeah, of War being yeah, it is still a thing. Okay, and Gears of War being a competitive team based shooter on the multiplayer front um, was sort of a shoe in for that. In Gears of War, like. I've said before on the show, like, I'm pretty good at video games. Like, I'm not, like, the best, I'm not amazing, but generally I can pick up a game and in a few minutes be competent at it, and stuff that I spend a lot of time at, I can get pretty good at. Um, You know, especially at this time, which was in, you know, high school era, or high school times, when I was spending all of my free time playing these types of competitive multiplayer games with my friends. And I knew a guy who was like, hey, you're really good at this. Like, we're trying to put together a team to go compete in this MLG tournament that was happening in Chattanooga. Um, and I went and we played and we won the tournament. And for a long time, I was in the top 100, like, worldwide leaderboard for the original Gears of War. Like, that's the closest I ever came to, like, esports fame was being in the top 100 in Gears of War. But, like... I was really fucking good at Gears of War. And it's, I mean, it's not like, I'm not looking back on that like, uh, yes, I was the star quarterback on the football team in high school. Like, where did my life go? Like, it's not that. But whenever I think about, like, being good at games and sort of the skills that it takes to actually, like, be competitive at something like this and thinking about the legitimacy of esports players compared to other different sports and things like that. Like, I just think about like how much time we had to practice and how many uh, unofficial matches we played. And then, you know, joining this tournament and going around to all these places. And this was like way back in the early days, there was like a prize pool of like a thousand dollars and it had to be split up between, you know, the winners. I think I got like a hundred bucks in total for winning that tournament. But, you know, I was like 13 or 14 Something like that. And it was like, yeah, whoa, what an MLG thing. And I'm on the top of the leaderboards. Like it just, it was the first time I think I ever really felt proud about being a gamer. And that, you know, has, has really shaped like, you know, fuck you. I like video games. If you're going to, you know, like my, my parents, especially, but other authority figures that I've known in my life have been like, oh, you'll grow out of that when you get older. It's like, I'm nearly 30. And I still play video games like almost every day. And this is going to be a hobby that I enjoy for the rest of my life. And that was solidified for me probably before then, you know, probably before this. But that was really like, I'm sure they'll uh, grow out of watching TV all day, uh, especially Fox News. I know. But that was, you know, really solidified for me and my personality and sort of my worldview. Like at this time, I think like I am good at something and I enjoy it. And it's going to be with me for 
the rest of my life. And I think I've talked about being, you know, when in like the uh, competitive like tournaments and stuff for Gears of War before. Like I think I've mentioned it on the show, but I don't know if I've ever like talked about the whole sort of thing. And like I spent like a season of my life, like or like a you know a season of the quote sport or whatever training and going to events and doing online brackets and stuff. Um, I, I probably played something like 500 hours of gears of war over the course of a couple of months, like training and then taking place in this tournament. And then like, it was really weird. Like after we won um, and the, and the bracket was over, like gears of war two had been announced. And basically the, the tournament scene dried up for gears of war almost overnight. And gears of war two was the next big thing. And then I tried to get into Halo on the competitive scene, and that just didn't didn't work out as well. There are a lot more good Halo players versus Gears of War players, and so that really never worked out for me. But yeah, I, you know, yeah, a story I did for some, uh, another time. Yeah, I did some team based competitive stuff as well, not in Gears, but uh, and it was never for prize pools. It was always just online, uh, just for funsies essentially. Uh, uh, low end brackets, but the thing yeah. is, uh, it was at that level where it people wouldn't take it seriously, and then we get upset when they lost. Yeah, yeah, the worst, the worst. <laughs> That's the worst in that type of stuff. Yeah, people get really pissed off when they lose. Yeah, I remember one person would taunt every time they killed somebody, which uh, in a nine v nine format, yeah, you're you're essentially losing your advantage right yeah but well i always in gears of war i always played like the old man like colonel guy mm-hmm. and everyone was always like oh ho, that's that's where you because my xbox live gamer tag is old and busted which is from way before that like um because i i've thought about men in black where uh, they're like you yeah know, old and busted new and hotness and so I named myself Old and Busty because so that was funny. But it, I liked that there was an old yeah, man. Yeah, but it turns out you there, grew into it. Because I just played the Colonel. I did. I did grow into it. Old and busted. That was our. That, that was like the shtick for our team. We were all old and something. There was an old and busted, an old and angry, old and horny, old and old, old and cranky, old and sick, old and someone's name was Old and Butts. And it, you know, no, that wasn't we were you? all like, no, that wasn't me. We were all like teens and tweens, so it's like hee hee butts. <laughs> but you know, whatever. Well, you'll okay. Here's a here's a better one for you. Uh, the guy that got me into esports, the name at least he went by at the time was your ex gay lover. <laughs> nice. That was always one of my favorite things for like um, Halo and other shooters where that people had to have like you would, you know, you would have like little profiles if, so that your name would display. And we would always make like stupid names like that, like your ex-gay lover or butt sex or AIDS. And it's like you were killed by AIDS. And it's like <laughs> so funny, which I mean, some of that stuff is still kind of funny. I'm not going to lie, but, you know, we, it was a lot of really bad jokes but it's it, your turn. Okay, so I talked about the entry to JRPGs, so let's go to the masterclass of JRPGs. And I'm going to go with one in particular instead of the series, because I, I played... 
five or six of the series now, but I've only completed two. But there's one that stands out to me as the best. So I want to go with it instead of the entire series. And that's Final Fantasy Nine. I've only really beaten Final Fantasies seven, nine, ten, and ten two. So I've completed four or three because ten and ten two is kind of a continuation of the story. But nine has always stuck out to me as the best overall story that I've uh, completed, and it kind of uh, got me into more of the story aspect as well as continuing on to the overall mechanics of a JRPG, where this is a different type of story. It's a lot more character-driven. It's Yes, they are off to save the world, but there's character interplay a lot more than a, at least at the time, Western RPG. There's a different type of storytelling here. And Final Fantasy IX was also kind of a throwback to older Final Fantasies that I never got to play, where it was no longer trying to be a techno-fantasy game. It was castles, princesses, knights. And that really felt a lot more of... uh, That struck a lot more of a chord with me. But I will say that uh, the uh, strategy guide for Final Fantasy IX sucked. (laughs) I had that, and... oh. Boy, what a uh, what a waste of uh, paper that was. Thankfully, not really necessary for the most part. But there's just this expanding story of it starts off uh, ki- uh, planning to kidnap a princess as a, almost an anti-hero. Turns out she's trying to escape at the same time, so you agree to help her escape to complete your mission. Well, it turns out. The, the person that uh, she's trying to escape to happens to be the person that hired the guys to kidnap her in the first place. And then things get crazier. But it's still more grounded to me than Final Fantasy 7 or 8 was. And 10, I think I think I want to go back and play 10 at some point. Because I think I was uh, a little bit too immature at the time to understand some of the uh, of the philosophy of ten uh, to appreciate it as more as I, as much as I would now. Now uh, ten two that's still a cheese ball, and I'm not. And I think I'll uh, cringe uh, through at least a quarter of that. But to me, Final Fantasy Nine really showed me beyond gameplay mechanics what a JRPG is. And is kind of the metric that I still measure to this day whenever I play a JRPG. Nice. I mean, we've talked off and on the show for, you know, several times about the Final Fantasy games that we've played and which one our, our favorites are. Um, I don't want to dive deep off into that conversation, but I would be down to play Final Fantasy X for either a game club or just kind of alongside you to have mm-hmm. that discussion. Because, I mean, I've played Final Fantasy seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 to 13 or yeah 13 and i've got final fantasy 15 yeah well it's on game pass so you have final fantasy 15 yeah yeah, yeah. right so you know final fantasy 15 on game pass and then i've played final fantasy 1 and 2 um as well but i haven't i haven't played any of the others but um you know i i would be down to play final fantasy 10 because final fantasy 10 was one of the first ones that i played i, I played final fantasy 8 
first, but I didn't beat it. And then I played Final Fantasy X all the way through, and then went back to Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, I gotta be honest, I, I got to the fourth disc of Final Fantasy VIII, and I was just confused. Well, I'm not sure I can be much of a help there, because I also am confused, but Final Fantasy VIII is my favorite, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing like a huge shrug, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but actually, I would like to go Game back Pass and play right 10 as well. Or Final Fantasy's 15 and 9. I knew that it was coming out on 9, or, or 9 was coming out on Game Pass, but I wasn't sure if it was already out, but looks like it is. Yeah. But we we totally could or should play Final Fantasy 10. We can we can talk about that later. Um So is that is it is it my yeah, turn? I just uh, it was kind of a continuation on. So uh, right. you're up. Right. So uh, I talked about I could tell you uh, I'll tell you about that another time, and it's now time for that other time. Uh, Halo. Um, I just put Halo series. Each Halo game up to a certain point, probably the original trilogy, is are the ones that sort of are the most significant to me. But each Halo game in turn like has meant something different to me throughout the years based on when I've played it and how game design has changed and so on. But, I mean, the original Halo trilogy... Again, like, sort of perfect timing in my life. Like, I played a shitload of these with my friends in middle school and in high school and in college. Um, land parties. Like, I, the whole reason I joined the computer club was because you had to be in the computer club to play, this was in high school, to play in their Halo tournaments. So every time there was a basketball game or a football game, the computer club would have a Halo tournament. And so I would go and I would play in the Halo tournament. Like, I mean, I've always, you know, been into computers and electronics, but the computer teacher at my high school was kind of a dick, and the computer club kind of sucked, but had to be in it to play in the the Halo tournaments, so I was, and I did. I tried to play Halo competitively, and I was not even the best among my friend group, and I couldn't compete, couldn't even compete with with people who were really good at Halo and the tournament scene. Um, I did, Halo was kind of my introduction into, like, mouse gaming and to, like, shooters because um, I would turn the sensitivity for Halo all the way up to max, like, whatever, 10, you know, 10 is the max. And I would turn it up to 10, and people would be like, oh my god, how can you play that? It's like, I mean, if you want to compete, you have to be fast. And my PC gaming up to that point had pretty much been RTS games and some 4X-type games. Um, but after playing Halo on console, um, there is Halo 1 on PC, which I got at that time. And I think Halo, Halo 2 also was on PC for Windows Vista, which I did not get Halo 2 on PC. But like Halo 1 I got on PC... Um, and played that there, and then started to expand into other shooter games. And Halo was kind of, as weird as it may sound, kind of the turning point from getting me primarily to be a console gamer into a PC gamer. Um, I still played consoles through college because I didn't have a gaming PC in college. But, uh, you know, after college, once I had enough money to put together a gaming PC, I transitioned pretty much primarily to PC gaming. And me wanting to be better and faster at Halo got me to where the other console games were too slow with a controller to actually control. And so then I swapped over to keyboard and mouse for stuff. Um, 
But beyond just that, Halo, I, I have talked about being super invested in the actual universe. At one point in time, I owned and had read all the books um, that existed to flush out the universe, had played all the games, had read all the comics, like I owned all the graphic novels, I owned the um, animated content that had been produced, because there were a couple of things that were like uh, different styles of anime to tell little Halo short stories. I had those. I had the live action stuff that had been made because there was a couple of live action shorts before they made like a small live action Halo movie. Um, the you know the big Hollywood one has never materialized, but this was a smaller one that was made. Um, I think in like 2014 or 2015. Um, you know, and, and at one point I had read all of that stuff. It's kind of gotten away from me now as the games have, uh, let's say evolved or devolved kind so of, you're saying the you know, combat they have, evolved? yeah, the combat evolved into something worse. Um, as Halo has lost a lot of the things over the years that made it distinctly Halo to make it more like games like Call of Duty and stuff. Um, and I mean, honestly, I'm way far away from playing the series in that way but i have a lot of memories as a kid playing halo at land parties at at people's houses at high school for every like birthday that we all had we would have like a sleepover and play stay up all night eating donuts and playing halo and i I have just a lot of specific memories tied to and around halo and so it's it's gonna kind of always be up there in my uh nostalgia brain um, having it come back out, uh, you know, release onto PC and as part of Game Pass, um, Halo Reach 1, 2, and then Halo 3. Like, I'm going to play through them all again on PC. Um, I don't know if we're going to do that co-op. We kind of stopped playing Reach co-op together. Yeah, we ended up uh, working on other stuff. We probably should actually continue with Reach. Yeah. Um, I was just having audio but, issues uh, as well. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if they got that fixed or not. But... You know, I, I'm going to play through them all again as they come out. And then, honestly, I don't know if I'll ever play Halo again. Um, but it still is going to hold a huge place in my sort of memory, in my nostalgia, as it were. So, Halo. Interesting place in my life. Okay, well, another, not really introduction for me, but really the first one I enjoyed, which caused me to go down a rabbit hole a bit of this genre. The ARPGs, I I joined PC gaming at a weird time. For quite a while, Diablo was kind of the king of PC gaming. And I missed that. So I never really had an, uh, that intro, you know, that, that stepping stone. And then I played Torchlight, and it was okay, but still, you know, wasn't quite there for me. Just something about how they had the dungeon layout and everything that never really clicked. And I sure I enjoyed it and I beat the game, but it felt like a slog. Well, I played the demo of Torchlight Two, and it just it clicked. There was uh, the way that they uh, connected the world and had everything work together, and it wasn't just this one massive dungeon that kept going further and further down. And had this interconnected world of smaller dungeons. And I know that sounds very trivial. However, it was just enough where it made a lot more sense to me. 
where everything was a little bit more bite-sized, a little bit more uh, palatable, that I ended up buying it pretty much as soon as I finished the demo. And it's, I think, in my top 15 hours played, which is quite significant, actually. Uh, I think I have a couple hundred hours played in it, and I don't want to go double-check that because loading my profile on Firefox causes the browser to seize for a little bit, and I don't want to risk my recording. Mm -hmm. But I have a significant number of hours played on it, and I've downloaded mods for it, and it's also one of the few games I actually uh, beat multiple times outside of doing it for a very particular reason. Uh, trying out different classes, uh, uh, experimenting with it, and it kind of made me understand why the uh, dungeon crawler looter is exciting. Uh, that said, I do know that there's also a lot of crap out there, and I and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on it, and I saw the uh, both the upsides and the downsides of some of it. Uh, I played the Van Helsing series, and while the first one is amazing saw how that degraded over time to the point where the third one uh, was just a slog. Uh, the, uh, oh shoot, now I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, there's another one that I played that it had a very interesting movement system where it was essentially WASD uh, and it played like almost a twin stick shooter instead of the traditional, uh, no, it's not Van Helsing, it's, uh Oh, I'd have to hunt it down and I don't have time for that right now. Uh, where uh, it's also in a horror universe. And I think that's also kind of what put me off of uh, Diablo back in the day was that uh, they're sort of horror adjacent and I never have been a horror guy. <laughs> so uh, uh, Torchlight 2 was kind of that perfect storm of being palatable uh, introducing the mechanics in a more interesting way, perhaps not being as deep as Diablo can be, but still having a pretty high skill ceiling while having a lower skill floor, while making things uh, have a lot more sense, uh, and having a proper progression system where I just fell in love with the game. And a little disheartened to see that Torchlight 3 is not doing particularly well on Steam reviews, at least at the time of recording, uh, which, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. That's perfect world for you. Right. Yeah. ARPGs. I still struggle to get into. There's been a couple, um, that have helped me make progress in that direction. Like, I don't, I don't know if divinity counts as an ARPG. I don't feel like it does. No, or if it does, I, I consider it's like that a one end of the spectrum. I consider that tactical RPG, but games like divinity are starting to make, ARPGs more palatable to me because of camera angles and party control and things like that um, for games that do have parties and then for ones that don't. Like, I'm just getting more and more used to that and eventually I think I will find a couple of ARPGs that I do like. So, I'll get there eventually. Um, Alright. My turn? Yeah. Um, so this is one that we've talked about ad nauseum in the, in the past. Uh, and no surprise, I think that it's going to show up on at least one, if not both, of our lists. But Kerbal Space Program. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I nearly put that on, but then I kind of balked on it because it felt like that was more transformative of lifestyle than gameplay. So I, so I well, held off on it. 
Kerbal Space Program was a first for me. Um, not only is it sort of the genesis of this and the genesis of the, what has become sort of like, you know, like I said earlier, my current friend group and things like that, but Kerbal Space Program was kind of a, like a gamble for me. At the time, I didn't know if I was going to like a game like that. Um, I had never played, like the closest I had come to playing something where it's like, build your own thing and set your own goals and do your own stuff before KSP was probably Minecraft. Um, and I know KSP and Minecraft are not in the same ballpark, but in that sense, like, you know, it's building a thing, setting your own goals, working towards something, um, making your own fun out of it. Very non-directive gameplay. And both games have changed a lot since then, but, you know, KSP was kind of a shot in the dark for me. I had seen some stuff that made me think I would like it. I was, um, I'd always been interested in sci-fi, um, but I wanted to get more into actual, like, science stuff. Um, and I was just starting to really get interested in, in, like, the space program and things like that before, like, real, real world space program, more than just from sort of a, a raw historical perspective. And so I, I took a gamble and I bought KSP and it, you know, changed my life both in terms of my interests things that i learned about and then you know beyond that the community that i found and have since you know been a part of growing um and ksp itself (laughs) yeah um you know ksp itself is like i said a game we've talked about ad nauseum in the past i i don't think i'm gonna deep deep dive too much into that but it's it's been fun you know, playing it and uh, the horrible news surrounding, you know, KSP2, which we talked about, you know, have talked about previously, you know, and I'm sure that will continue to develop, you know, all of that pushed aside, like the idea of getting to dive into that world again from a possibly fresh perspective is very exciting. And also, if it wasn't for KSP, I probably wouldn't have played games like Space Engineers and um been looking forward to playing like Shipbreaker like I don't have Shipbreaker yet but I'm going to get it and I know that those things again are not necessarily in the same ballpark as KSP but KSP helped familiarize myself with the concept of uh 3D spaces functioning in that way like um just in the way that space functions I guess is is you know you don't have I know that factually this isn't true but it's like you know there's you don't have gravity like there's a, a lot of freedom to movement and, you know, Newtonian physics is a thing and learning how to deal with all that stuff and orbits and, um, space is not know, just et cetera, tired, et cetera. fast. Right. Yeah. Learning how to deal with all of that. And so, you know, it's, it's pushed me to into a, an entirely, you know, at the time, new genre of gaming for me. And that's probably the genre of games that I play the most now. The, uh, you know, build your own, have your own fun. The Factorios, the Space Engineers, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And KSP. I've played KSP for over 500 hours. It's in, uh, like, the top 20, top 15, top 20 games that I've played in terms of playtime. So, for for me, it was a pretty obvious one to go on the list. Yeah, I think uh, the reason why I didn't put KSP on it's actually my next game. And I, no, I'm not joking. I've, uh, it, we've had, I guess, spent way too much time around one another because things are lining up amazingly well, huh? 
I guess. So What's your next my name? next one is the Sims series, and it's sort of my intro to emergent gameplay and, like you said, setting my own goals. And I think that's why Kerbal Space Program didn't feel quite as much of a gamble, was that I've had a lot of experience with just doing my own thing, yeah, setting up my own thing, uh, or having things kind of change because, or have to change plans because of a random event. You know, uh, I've played, uh, actually, all four of the major entries of the Sims series now. Um, may have acquired Sims 3 and all its DLCs at one point because fuck paying that much for it. Uh, that's that's right. probably my biggest gripe with the Sims series is that it is fucking expensive to get into, especially if you want to have even a, a small portion of the, of the expansions because they... Uh, well, let's just put it this way. The tits on uh, that cash cow, whoo, <laughs> uh, milked is not even begin to cover it. I think it, Sims 4 is up to 10 expansions and then like another 15 stuff packs. I'm just wanting to double check that one because uh, let's just put it this way. Sims 4, uh, let's just put Sims 4 Steam. Sims 4 Steam... If you want to get everything, it's, oh, well, it's on sale right now, or at least some of it, but you're looking at $694.66 of DLC, uh, with a bunch of stuff. Well, that's a few. Bunch of stuff packs. It's a few dollars. So, sorry, what? I said, ah, it's, it's just a few dollars. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff packs that, you know, don't really need, but then you look at, like, uh, major expansion packs that add different stuff and it's or major uh, gameplay changes so yeah but hey they give away one dlc the holidays ex- uh, celebration pack so hmm. uh but anyway 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 i'm getting off base uh the uh sims uh series has always been about you know kind of setting your own goals yeah uh, what do i want to do with this sim or uh, perhaps just this family and playing it out. One thing I really liked uh, in Sims 3 was, I'm not sure if it was a mod, which I mod the fuck out of Sims 3, actually, uh, or if it was part of the game itself, was that uh, Sims would uh, grow old and die, but also their uh, families would continue on. So if you're on, like, Generation 2 or 3 of your family, well, and you marry into another family, well you could see their entire family tree as well. Well, that also eventually did make the game unstable because, whew, right? Yeah, you get a lot of... A, a lot of uh, a lot of trash data, which I do understand why Sims 4 went back to more of a closed-off world than Sims 3 had. Because Sims, uh, Sims 3, I think, is kind of the sweet spot where it was open-world go uh, with the... Uh, after playing Sims 3, I have a lot of problems playing The Sims 4 just because it feels a lot more artificial, which I realize is kind of funny talking about The Sims, but uh, where traffic makes a lot more sense, uh, people walking around makes a lot more sense, especially if you're on like a main thoroughfare, you'll see a lot more people than if you're out in the middle of nowhere, where outside of a few people forced to run by like jogging, you won't see a lot of people. But also can make it so that you could kind of role play as a hermit. One uh, sort of challenge I set myself one time was uh, intentionally bought like the smallest lot 
and cheated myself to have like a tent and a couple of things from one of the expansions that basically made it like you were camping. And then wasted all my money to get myself down to zero and try to just live as like a, a, a as homeless as you could get in The Sims. You have panhandling, play, uh, eventually building up to be able to get like a guitar to be able to play for tips on the street, that sort of thing. But eventually, you know, I had a random event pop up that uh, made it so that I had a bit of money. So I was able to invest that into something else and uh, sort of build my character up. And that emergent gameplay that I learned from The Sims, I think is why Kerbal Space Program didn't feel quite as special outside of the setting it's in, where you have a pseudo-realistic space simulator. Because I, I learned it all from The Sims series. Or just sitting down and building out, you know, random houses or building, you know, like a secret underground base with, uh, under a little shack or as much as I could in The Sims. That sort of thing. You know, like you do. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you're right, I, but I just didn't think of The Sims as emergent gameplay. But, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It just... Because, uh, when did I play Sims 3 for the first time? Probably... Mm, Mid two thousands, I don't remember exactly when The Sims three came out, but you know, somewhere in that time frame. So I had played The Sims three before uh, Kerbal and before Minecraft and stuff, but just with the, I guess the differences in what the games are, I didn't think of them in the same way. Yeah, well, uh, The Sims also kind of throws more wrenches into the works as well, unless you have uh, very particular mods in Kerbal. Uh, there's not the random events that can pop up like in Sims three that. Like, oh, well, your Kate, your uh, cooking career just got ruined because you were on Iron Chef or, you know, or whatever, or, you know, Steel Chef or whatever they're calling it in The Sims. And uh, you were found out to be cheating. So you got fired from your job and now you have to either build your way back up or just, you know, try to take a different for career or just live in disgrace and, you know, uh, you know hope that you could do something uh, uh, in the next generation, right? Yeah. That's something that I. I I wish that there was more competition in uh, for The Sims because some, some things I would love to see is you know, some uh, lasting consequences of past generations, especially if you're playing a multi-generational family where, oh, well, you're the son of a thief. Well, you're going to be a, a lot more distrusted. You have to earn your trust, that sort of thing. Or uh, having proper... Gen- a, a, more genetic genetics passing down particular traits. There is some of that in Sims 4, but not as much as I kind of would have liked. And I understand why there's not a lot of uh, competition. I mean, first of all, it's The Sims. It's like uh, one of those games that has this captive audience that buys, you know, 600 some uh, dollars worth of DLC. But there's also, it's tough to build something like this because there's so many ifs or edge cases that you have to try to account for that EA is able to just throw people at. So, yeah, I mean, The Sims is one of those games that just... It's going to be tough for it to be topped outside of them tripping over themselves. Nice. Okay, my turn again. Mm -hmm. All right. This is my last, like, cheaty one. Um, it is the Mass Effect trilogy. Um, Mass Effect is another one of the games 
And and when when I say Mass Effect, I usually refer to the entire trilogy because I'm a story guy. And no, Mass Effect did not pull it off perfectly. There are certainly problems with the stories throughout the game. Um, the ending is a huge problem for a lot of people. Um, it didn't, the, the ending of Mass Effect 3 didn't, the original ending before they redid it, didn't bother me in the same way that it bothers a lot of people, but it was a little bit of a letdown compared to the rest of the journey along the way. But in general, when I talk about Mass Effect, I mean the entire trilogy, unless I specifically refer to one of the, one of the individual games or a moment from one of the individual games. Um, and I loved it. I felt like it did get a huge amount of things right. There are choices that, even if they don't actually matter, they masterfully make them feel like they matter. From small choices like punching the goddamn reporter in the face because she's an annoying, like, hardcore, like, she, I mean, she was a right-wing Fox Newser before I even knew what that was. And I would punch her in the mouth because she was all about making shit up and not reporting the real story. I was so happy in Mass Effect 3? I might have been Mass Effect 2, where you punch her in the goddamn mouth. Lying I think bitch. it was two, But anyways. But you do realize that probably comes back to bite you, right? In what, later? Nah, it's fine. I've, I've punched her. I've not punched her. I've played through the entire Mass Effect trilogy three or four times. Uh... At least, maybe more. I've watched it played through a couple of times, because um, the Mass Effect trilogy kind of span, you know, it, it spans a many years, and I've played through them with one of my friends, um, which I'll talk about more, like a lot more on a, another game uh, later on on my list. Um, but you know, we would trade off like playing games and stuff, and so I've watched him play through the game at least the first two, and you know seen all these different choices and ways to play it and it it was god it's such a big thing and for it to come together i think mostly satisfactorily um is a, an amazing feat that you know it's sad that bioware bioware is basically a dead studio at this point that ea has fucked over so many no it's times a zombie they're about to shoot it in the head and kick it over the cliff like they've done so many other developers by now but they weren't there at the time it wasn't. It wasn't then. Um, Mass Effect, the Mass Effect trilogy stuck out to me so much that I wrote both my undergraduate thesis, which is not as like big or fancy as a a graduate, you know, master's or PhD level thesis. But I wrote both my undergraduate thesis and my master's thesis on the psychology of Mass Effect. Um, the first one was like a thirty something page paper, and then the other one. Like my my dissertation, it was like two hundred and something pages on the psychology of Mass Effect. Insane, like what I went through and picked apart all the characters and scenarios and discussed tropes and talked about religion and talked about allegory and there is a lot of stuff in that game, a lot. And I mean, Ma- Mass Effect is one of the most significant games on this list for my life because of that because i spent dozens maybe hundreds of hours studying the game and studying the characters and picking them apart and researching and and putting together my sources and honestly like kind of writing a bunch of the stuff like 
whole cloth because the, at, at the time, like games weren't taken as seriously or seriously at all by the wider world as potentially artistic medium and having as much uh, to offer as like literature or films would. And uh, like, as far as I know, this is none of this stuff has been published anywhere. Maybe it exists somewhere in like, you know, a, a journal or a magazine, like somebody, I don't, I don't know, but um, I have my copies of them, but I don't know if they exist anywhere else in the world, but there weren't a lot of sources for me to go through. Like I had to make this shit up and you know, that, that is why I have believed for many years that video games are in fact art and can be used. Even like big mainstream ones can be used to say something important if you are paying attention and Mass Effect has got a lot of stuff inside of it. Um, you know, a lot of religious allegory, a lot of deep questions about what is life and the meaning of life and what is, you know, what actually constitutes a person and how much can we really affect change in our life and the wider world? How much of a difference can one person make beyond just the video game or, you know, film, whatever tropes of being like, oh yes, you're the chosen one. Like you're the one who does the thing and makes a difference. Like, there's a lot more in the game to that. And it asks you to make some really tricky moral choices if you sit down and think about it and make it more than just a video game decision. You know, the eradication of a race, mass brainwashing, um, you know, suicide. What does it mean to take one's life? And what does it mean to choose a, one life over another one and why? And yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little for, like for wistful. Yeah. For sterilization, um, you know, uh, uplifting of a of a culture, cultural appropriation, uh, technological. I don't. There's probably a phrase for this that I don't know, but the idea of like, should you use technology that you don't understand? Um, the idea of uh, artificial intelligence and what to do with that and how to handle that. Um, yeah. I'm I'm getting a little little wistful, a little misty eyed, Uh-oh. just thinking about like all. The, I mean, I'm not gonna like start like bawling or anything. I don't think, but well, well, just I was like more being playful in that one. I got gotcha. you. No, but just like thinking about all the time and effort I put into dissecting this series, like I love it. I love it to death. It's it's another one of those that's in there for contention of like top game of all time, but it it has to be put together as like a package deal. If you split the trilogy apart into any one game they have their strengths and their weaknesses but they have to work together as a cohesive unit or it doesn't work so your turn okay so for me uh well once again things kind of line up nicely uh also have a trilogy but it's a different trilogy and it's not it's kind of a weird trilogy because it's a three games that are set in the same world that maybe kind of appreciate open world gaming, but they have tenuous connections at times, but at times have a lot stronger connections. And it's the GTA three trilogy, uh, which is GTA three vice city and San Andreas. And it kind of opened me up to more open world gameplay, but also uh, kind of the, uh, the idea of, uh, multiple games in the same universe sharing a, a grander overall story while not being directly connected and making me look a little bit closer at some of the other games I enjoyed where characters will pop up 
and not really think about it. But then it's like, oh crap, that's uh, that guy is actually the protagonist in this other game. Or uh, an offhand comment, uh, not really thinking about it. Then later on, it's like, oh wait, that that's that's this guy. And it was kind of this neat. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to put it. Just really uh, a neat, interesting idea of multiple games could be pl- uh, placed in the same universe while not being actually directly connected, but also making me look a little bit closer at things. And also, I did really enjoy just going around shooting people, right? Uh, yeah. You know, that open world aspect of it where I could get lost in just doing side missions and side activities. Sort of like how things happen with Morrowind, but a lot more constructive or a lot more constructed, I guess I should say, where, you know, doing, you know, uh, ambulance missions or, you know, go uh, in San Andreas, uh, stump flying, that sort of thing, where there's this constructed nature to the side activities, where it wasn't just be randomly exploring, but also starting to find things like, you know, uh, accidentally stumbling across the no Easter eggs here Easter egg was uh, uh, amusing. Uh, finding uh, uh, cross uh, uh, cross seeding of uh, ideas from uh, like an ad uh, talking about a business that I robbed in a different game, <laughs> that sort of thing. That I just made me really appreciate this overall world that they built up and kind of threw away with the GTA 4, but that's beside the point. Yeah. And it's also kind of funny how if you play them in uh, chronological order, they also feel like the games kind of get a little bit more simplified because it's the reverse order of release. So there's the... Uh, GTA 3, where you're, it's a, a, essentially a redemption story from uh, a silent protagonist to where they build it up to a, uh, essentially an analog to Scarface with a very vocal, flamboyant protagonist to a game banger trying to make a better life for him and his gang. And uh, actually kind of a murder mystery as well. <laughs> I have I put a couple of Grand Theft Auto games on my list for consideration, but obviously I'm way past G in the alphabet, and they didn't yeah. make it. But I had Vice City at the top of of my list of Grand Theft Auto games to put on the list. Yeah, uh, I've, uh, admittedly, I've only really completed one, and I was at like the very final stage, and I had my save corrupt of Vice City. I never got terribly far in GTA Three, and I need to do that sometime. I actually own it on Steam. Uh, it's probably a, would be a good game club game of going back to uh, one of the older GTA games, if not GTA 4. I've never played GTA 3. I've beat Vice City. I played San Andreas, but I didn't beat it. I think it. San Andreas would I've... be very interesting with the, the current political climate as well, huh? Yeah. I've beaten 4, and then I played 5 about... I got about halfway through the story, and I just quit because I didn't care anymore. Yeah, I, it does feel like... Uh, GTA, uh, uh, I'm just going to call it the GTA 3 trilogy, uh, had this right combination of wackiness as well with a serious tone that, while I enjoyed GTA 4, 
uh, it had this oddball nature. Uh, uh, the story gameplay juxtaposition just was too much. Where you'd go beat up someone, then you know, feel bad about beating them up. Well, all the uh, protagonists in the GTA 3 uh, trilogy were unapologetic you know, psychopaths to one degree or another. That never felt bad for harming a person, never uh, you know, had qualms about it. Instead, you know, you know, Nico honestly was a nice guy forced into a bad situation over and over and over again. And it just felt off when he was, you know, talking about not wanting to do this after, you know, just beating up a hooker uh, just before the cutscene, right? Yeah. Now, I will say that the games are a little rough uh, these days just because, yeah, I think the newest one's going on 20 years old now. So, gameplay-wise, they're fairly <laughs> solid, but graphically, short of a remaster or fan mods, you know, it, it, you know, it, it, it does look like you're driving around soapboxes, <laughs> right? Or, or yeah. cars made of uh, uh, boxes, I should say. Boxes on wheels. Yeah. That's boxes okay, on uh, round boxes. But there, uh, GTA San Andreas also had this kind of culture around it. It was that perfect storm of playing it right when people were trying to figure out all the secrets of it. So that also kind of ties back to my Pokemon time where... Yeah, people were uh, actively hunting Bigfoot in ETA San Andreas <laughs> and looking through the code and trying to figure out, okay, is this real? Because there was some hoaxes online and people were saying, oh, yeah, if you do this certain thing and you're at this certain location while uh, at, at a certain time, uh, Bigfoot will show up. Then another person would say, no, that's bullshit. He's, he's over here. <laughs> and it's just that, once again, that kind of just wacky time uh early internet where there were just yep yeah you really can't recapture these days and i also remember people also trying to figure out all the cheat codes because this was before you know you just type in words into the cell phone it was an actual you know button uh, series of button presses that i remember on the game faqs form somebody had rigged up a controller uh to well uh, to a, a small computer, what nowadays would just be a Raspberry Pi, and was sending random but, button combinations and waiting for cheat activated to try to figure out the different cheats and just people trying to decode what this particular cheat did. While some were more apparent than others, uh, there was uh, one that just would change uh, everybody's clothing and took the board like a day to realize that <laughs> or there was one that uh, just entered riot mode and they figured out that if you did that well it would uh, actually break the game because there was a particular sequence that it would cause uh to uh constantly fail if you accidentally saved while that game or while that particular cheat was on so sort of this internet detective uh behind the scenes that just you had to kind of be there to understand that that yeah. also kind of leaves this area or this particular time in my life a, a little bit of a soft spot and it just happens to be that game that i was playing at the time and following indeed all right um 
uh, this is this next one is a big break for me and in, in like terms of what it is. Um and I've talked about this on the show before once or twice. It's an older game by the name of Naval Ops Commander. Um the Naval Ops series is an interesting one both in what it is and where it sort of shows up in my gaming lexicon. It's um a naval combat game where you the smallest ship that you can control is a destroyer on up through aircraft carriers and battleships um you start in sort of world war ii era technology and progress to uh what at the time was future tech but was stuff that would have um you know that that came into being a a few years ago now so uh modern ish era tech i guess at this point um, but this is an interesting introduction to me to several things. Number one, it's a very anime story. Uh, you start off thinking that you're kind of an alternate, an alternate world, World War II sort of thing, but very quickly, it's it it becomes more than that with um, interesting like sci-fi tech and like everything's everything's treated very seriously. Like it's all military type stuff and operations you're the commander of a vessel and specifically naval ops commander you command a small flotilla um of up to three other vessels but you wind up with uh sci-fi tech the like lasers and some alien suggested alien weapons and in commander you play the reverse side in the original naval ops uh or in naval ops one you get sucked into like a weird portal and show up in this alternate history, alternate, like, timeline world. In Commander, you play the alternate history, alternate timeline world, and all of these other vessels from real-world Earth start showing up, and stuff ensues. In Naval Ops 2, they kind of go even more anime, with you having, like, a full-on anime, like, story, and anime, like, drawn protagonists, sort of that late 90s, early 2000s anime style. Um, all of the characters look like that. And the story is still very serious, but it leans fully into the anime side of it. Um, and Naval Ops 2 goes back to sort of the idea of Naval Ops 1, where you're controlling a single ship versus a flotilla. But it it did, it did a few things for me. One, this was another game that prompted me to study history more. Um, almost everything that exists in the game is real from either a at least a conceptual standpoint or a propaganda standpoint. Um, for example, there is a ship called the Habakkuk, uh, which is like one of the boss enemies, which is a ship that's basically made out of a giant block of ice. Um, it was, and it's a real concept for a real ship. Yeah, the British. It, um, yeah, the British. Um, and it was made out of a combination of ice and like sawdust. Yeah, Mythbusters actually um, it was, tested that one uh, with different materials yeah and it was designed to operate in the arctic where that you wouldn't have to worry about the ice melting and the the ice armor was stronger than than at the time like contemporary steel um made with you know for the time modern metalworking technique and it could easily be repaired because it's just ice and you could graft new ice armor plates over the old ones. Very interesting. Con- but it's like that blew my mind that that was real. Um, and the other stuff that exists, like concepts for double hull battleships and combination air. When aircraft carriers were first being created, they were 
trying to figure out how to shove them onto everything that existed. And concepts exist for aircraft carrier, battleship combinations, and things like that. And so all that stuff is in the game. And it's like, oh, this is like weird stuff, but it was actually like real and either prototyped or at least diagrammed. And, you know, real scientists and real military people came up with this stuff. And on top of that, the major, one of the major aspects of the game was that you could design your own ships. You had some, you know, preset things like hulls and stuff um, with tonnage limits, but you could build whatever you wanted. And there were benefits and detriments to building along the lines of real life ship conventions, you know, putting your weapons on the center line of the ship and standard uh, engine configurations with boilers and turbines and things like that to either maximize power or maximize protection. And, um, but you could also go kind of crazy and create these weird ship designs that, uh, for example, used turrets on the side, or you would put the, both the fore and aft bridge at the rear of the ship and make it like this weird, like hit and run kind of thing where all the weapons are on the front or, with later weapons in the game, like you could get like lasers and stuff and you could try to use an entire laser based fleet. And, but that actual design element was very in depth and a lot of fun and was one of the things that, that got me into other stuff later on. Like I love building and designing ships, spaceships, real ships, doesn't matter. Like I actively seek out games that have that mechanic and no game has done it as well as Naval Ops. This weird, Japanese game that was translated into English and brought over to the United States in the early 2000s. Like, no game has done it better since then, at least that I've played. So, Naval Ops Commander is, is one of, is one of only three games that I go back and play <coughs> with any regularity on my PS2 emulator. So. Okay, so I'm up again? Yeah. Okay, so another one of, intros with a uh, more of a deep dive later on on to uh, on my next entry but sim city 2000 and very particular this one is that i just absolutely fell in love with this game and this was kind of my introduction into the management genre i played uh, other maxis games before and this is actually my second Maxis game, uh, because The Sims, uh, on my list. So, uh, oh, I really miss Maxis, but that's beside the point. So, SimCity 2000, it's my intro into the management genre, or I should say where I started to really pay a lot more attention to it, because I played other ma- uh, management-style games before, actually other Maxis games at school, but this was the first one I actually played for fun. And I actually remember finding this game at Sam's <laughs> and uh, getting my parents to buy this way back in the day. Actual physical copy. I, I think I lost it somewhere in a move later on because, you know, just life happens, right? Especially with moves. Uh, but right. I played the absolute hell out of it and uh, tried to actually build. Uh, well, one my area, which unfortunately was just too, you know, uh, sparse to really be able to uh, do in the simulation because you know low populations didn't do all that well. It's a city builder, but also you know, started to try to build 
realistic cities and kind of just fell into this rabbit hole of kind of pseudo city design, not really researching it, just trying to figure out how it uh, works uh, in this particular game and how the mechanics worked, you know, how traffic patterns worked in the game, which uh, looking back at it, it was kind of a fool's errand because of just how the simulation ran. Because uh, at the time, I thought it ran agents in you know, actual traffic routes instead of just simulating it and would try to build detours or secondary routes to you know make it a lot more realistic, but not really playing the game like the game was designed, which I know looking at it now it's kind of uh, you idiot but come on I, I was i was a kid right right but just you know trying my best to build this actual city and uh and coping with disasters and maybe sometimes uh launching an alien attack myself but uh, figuring out how uh sort of the larger world worked through an edu- uh, edutainment title of my own uh, uh, choosing as well. That kind of uh, discovery of you know, enjoying some sort of management games, uh, some sort of uh, of uh, figuring out just you know, going into this micromanagement mode and enjoying it, of going through different things, of just uh, trying to come up with a grand plan for the supply of land. Like I said, I spent a lot of time with SimCity uh, 2000 and to the point where whenever I play City Skylines, I still fire up the old SimCity 2000 theme and uh, SimCity uh, music. And it actually uh, just breaks my heart what you know, EA did to Maxis and the SimCity franchise to the point where uh, I, I don't think we'll see another one. Or anything even close to what SimCity was. Or at least, I should say, with that moniker. I mean, City Skylines has kind of usurped the throne in that. But it's still not quite there, you know? It's... Yeah. Uh, it's a different focus in the same genre. But, yeah. It's just it's sort of that management adjacent uh, going into just problem-solving. Like I said, uh, another game of my childhood. Indeed. A couple of those have been on my list for sure. Mm-hmm. And I got one more, maybe two more, depending on how you classify this next one. Um, Well, are you, before yeah, I, I'm I jump in, are you? Okay. So my next game, um, Super Smash Brothers Melee. So Smash, this is my only Nintendo game on the list. Um, the Smash Brothers series has been a favorite of mine since I was a kid. I, I remember the first time I ever played the original, I was at a friend's sleepover for his birthday party and, um, had, you know, had this weird fighting game where you played as Nintendo characters. What? And I stayed up all night playing that game and I got home and I convinced my grandmother, um, to take me to the store to buy Smash Brothers. And so I did, and then I played it on my my N64. And I got Melee for the GameCube, um, and I had fun with it. I think Melee, from what I at least last 
new last looked at, Melee was still one of the favored ones for tournament play. Um, that could have changed. It's been a couple of years since I've even like looked at it out of curiosity. But, um, you know, I, I got Melee when I was still in high school, middle school. Damn, I don't even know when that game came out. Early 2000s, I guess. So that would have been like middle school. Um, played it, held on to it, didn't play it for a number of years and then took it to college. And that like overnight became like a hit. And I just remember so many nights up late, supposed to have been studying, um, me and my friends, you know, my roommate, my sweet mates playing Smash Brothers instead of doing homework or going to bed because we had to go to class or work the next day or whatever. Um, just playing Smash Brothers and shooting the shit. Uh, I don't know if, I, I don't think that Jovi listens to this podcast, but you know, knowing what I know about you now versus then, it makes sense why Peach was like your favorite character, girl. So if you're out there listening, peace and love. I don't know why I said that. I could just message you on Twitter and be like, hey, bitch, check this out. And you would. But, but I, I just have got, this is probably my most like pure nostalgia. Like I don't have anything to say in terms of like gameplay mechanics. Like it was a fun fighting game, you know. I like the Nintendo characters. I like the levels. But this is the most pure, just for fun, nostalgia game that's on my list because of how many good memories for how many years I have associated with it, playing with friends in school, um, you know, middle school, high school, college. And then I haven't, <laughs> I haven't played it in 10 years, probably. Maybe not quite that long, but, you know, I, I've played the Smash Brothers that was on Wii U. A little bit, and I've played the Smash Brothers. It was on Twitch or Twitch Switch a little bit um, in the past, but they'll never be melee when I was in college, and that's that's nostalgia for you. Okay, well, since we're on a nostalgia trip, how about uh, sort of the masterclass for uh, management games? And no, it's not what you think, because you would think Dwarf Fortress, but you'd be wrong. Uh, Dwarf Fortress is something else, and actually I didn't put it on my list because, one, it felt too obvious, and two, it was uh, kind of a deep dive through several things, and it's been on and off uh, for too many years, and I wanted to leave a couple spots for some negatives. Besides, uh, I think the Harvest Moon series actually kind of uh, transformed me a bit more than Dwarf Fortress, and this is over the course of three or four different iterations of it. So Harvest Moon 64, uh, Back to Nature, Friends of Mineral Town, and there's one other that I'm just blanking on that I know also was there, where it's management in a different way. It's more intimate, uh, where you're managing just your farm, where you're managing... Yeah, your relationships where it's not this grand overarching plan. It's just you and your wife, but also figuring out the relationships, figuring out your place in uh, the town, figuring out your, uh, yeah, uh, who you're going to bang, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, there you go, right? Uh, but uh, being that outsider, uh, working your way in, uh, becoming part of the social circle of, you know, the town or whatever town it is in that game uh, where everything doesn't need to be micromanaged where uh, you don't have to go in with this grand plan. You know, you could just go 
you know, grow some strawberries and figure it out as you go along. You know, get a few chickens, get a few cows, but also have to watch the clock and figure out just how to, you know, what you want to do, how things work out for your play style. And it kind of was an evolution from how I played SimCity, where uh, I went in with a bit more of a plan to more free-flowing, but also figuring out how, okay, this doesn't work for how I want to play. I'll try something else and get uh, 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 get the uh, this upgrade or or okay, well, I missed this season uh, uh, or I need this for this upgrade for this se- from this last season. I didn't get it. What can I do now? And I didn't have to micromanage everything. I could just have fun you know doing my thing. Uh, and this was really pre internet still for me. So having to, you know, uh, take notes on, okay, well, uh, she, uh, doesn't like this, but likes this. Uh, I saw her over here, uh, remember, uh, different routines, uh, and it felt like I was more part of the world. Uh, m- not this overarching God mayor that I was in SimCity, but just a humble farmer. Uh, right. And that's why, yep, uh, sort uh, sort of the Harvest Moon series. Uh, and I'm, I'm, it's really just this chunk in the you know, 64-bit era that really strikes a chord because, uh, honestly, the newer ones. Uh, and I'm a little leery that they're remaking uh, Friends of uh, Mineral Town because that's, you know, one of those three or four. I'm a little concerned about that one. But, yeah. I suppose, yeah, I suppose we'll find out when it when it comes out. Never played the Harvest Moon games all that much. I've played them, but never got as in deep to them as as some other stuff. Yeah. I played Animal Crossing more I, than I played I, Harvest I mean, Moon. Stardew Valley is, uh, yeah, is a very, very close analog, but it also offers a bit more on other paths. So you're able to, if you wish, just focus on like fishing or, or mining or uh, really just go exploring the dungeon. Yeah, you know, beating new monsters and then murdering them. Uh, but right. in the Harvest Moon games, there is a fairly big focus on the actual farming and then everything else is a side activity instead of Stardew Valley where uh, they're all at least somewhat legitimate methods of progression outside of the requirement of having certain things for the big uh, overarching progression Unless you just, you know, sell out the town. <coughs> but yeah, it's... Oh, sorry, I went to get a cough drop and bump the mic. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I would say Stardew Valley. It, I mean, you played that and enjoyed it. It's at least what I played of the star, of the Harvest Moon, or I guess I should say Story of Seasons now, because uh, they lost the rights to use Harvest Moon in the U.S. Uh, or I should say in the Western world. So they have to use the original name for it, which is Harvest of, uh, or, or, or is Story of Seasons. Uh, they are more focused on farming and more focused on the actual relationships. So it's almost like a social simulator. So yeah, you know that's uh, the Harvest Moon series or sub series. Uh, you're up. 
Well, this is my last one since I slid Elder Scrolls Oblivion in when you mentioned Morrowind. Um, and it's still a pretty good one for me to end on. Uh, it's Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, the first one. Um, I Star Wars is one of a handful of things that I am super into and know a shitload about. Um, you know, Star Wars, Battletech are the, like, the two things that probably, like, at the drop of a hat, like, oh, hey, tell me about this. Give me a crash course in that. Or someone's mentioned something. I'm like, oh, yeah, this thing. Like, this obscure thing from whatever episode of the Clone Wars TV uh, cartoon series or from a book or just, like, I read on the wiki one time because I read, you know, Wikipedia just for funsies sometimes. Um, I love Star Wars. And... While I've always liked Star Wars, you know, for as long as I can remember as a kid, KOTOR kind of set that in for me as like, nope, this is a universe that I'm going to, like, dive headfirst into forever. Um, I've played through the original KOTOR, I don't know, 15 times, 20 times by myself, exploring the dark side, the light side, the variety of choices, the hidden stuff in the game, um, things that you can find that don't get marked down as part of any quest that um, you can, you know, explore and dive into the consequences for your choices that you have. Um, There is a huge amount of depth to the game. It's got one of sort of the all-time, like, great, like, spoilers for, like, spoiler twists for a video game. Yeah, which has turned into, uh, it was a sled because everybody knows it. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that you're Revan at this point, right? But when it released, especially when it when the game came out, again, this was in the early days of the internet, and while there were places where you could go find it, um, you know, as a as a kid, I didn't, you know, spend anywhere near as much time online as I do now. So, but anyways, I mean, I I have explored, I think, ev- uh, everything there is to explore within Kotor, playing the game like without as with as minimal. Jedi powers as possible is is doable, and you get some different stuff in that. But one thing that I did with my my best friend as a kid, and and we played through the game many times like this. Would we would we would lay out like a basic character concept that way we kind of agreed like, okay, are we going to be more neutral? Are we going to be more good? Are we going to be more evil? Are we just going to say fuck it and do what we want? And we would trade off, and each of us would play an entire section of the game while the other watched. And then the other person would have to deal with their choices. Um, and that was like ways that we spent like our summers. Like we would, because like this was the, you know, the, the friend that I was close to that I would spend like a week at his house and then he would spend a week at my house during the summer. And, you know, we wouldn't, when we were older, we would like go to our jobs and then like just come back and hang out like all day, every day. And we would play KOTOR and play through an entire playthrough in a weekend or, you know, a week or whatever, and do this over and over and over again. And even to this day, like, I played through KOTOR 1 and 2 a a few years ago, and I remembered pretty much everything about the game. And I still enjoyed it. Um, KOTOR, I think, is an example of, of what can be done right when a team pours time and effort and energy into making a single player flushed out, thought out, role-playing game set in an existing universe and sort of building upon it. Um, I love KOTOR. And, you know, I don't know if it would be on my list of, like, top games of all time, but it 
also holds a special place in my heart for 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 that reason for being something that I have just spent so much time loving and built so many memories around with uh at the time my best friend haven't talked to him in years after it was one of those things like after high school we went to different colleges and our lives took drastically different paths and I haven't talked to him in five or six years but now I feel slightly sad but that's how life goes you know drift apart from some people okay so and that's it I'm up again so yep do you do you have two yeah, left I got two left and they're two anti-choices so okay the first one is a game I followed quite a bit in its pre-production it was quite excited about and then it came out Spore no more pre-orders to be fair I did not pre-order it uh acquired it after I saw some of the reactions like it can't be that bad Oh, it was worse. I beat the game in three hours. Uh, Spore is one of those games... Well, okay, I guess I should say three Maxis games, one anti-choice. Because I forgot Spore Maxis. Uh, Spore is uh, one of those games that the concept is absolutely incredible. Where it is a life simulator like no other. Where you play a species building up literally from single cell, evolving, growing, learning, to eventually being a spacefaring civilization. And they made it into essentially warrior wear. Okay, maybe not that shallow, but it essentially played as five knockoffs of other video games that were far, far better. And it was just such a utter disappointment for me that it made me really not pay attention to a lot of pre-release stuff for really any video game up until uh, really doing the podcast, honestly. I'd uh, watch it, but I would always have a severe skepticism just because I remember what they showed off from Spore and it's like, well, we'll see how it comes out. I mean, they showed off entire life stages that they cut. They had, they fucking had Robin Williams uh, promoting it at one point. Uh, they... Uh, simplified literally every th- concept. Well, it all came down to just really management issues where there were two teams where one team in the in the development side wanted to be a lot more realistic where creature design made a lot more uh, uh, importance on survival and on how your character or species, I guess I should say, what, uh, interacted with the environment. And the other one wanted everything to be cutesy and, you know, not very deep, make it a, a very shallow title, and they won. Where literally what mattered was, okay, well, you could have something absolutely ridiculous, but if you put the proper part on it, it didn't matter because, you know, it was essentially a, uh, this massive stat boost. But it honestly didn't matter in the, anyway because uh, the game was just so shallow. There was really nothing there. It was a 3D editing program that you could uh, play with the models a little bit. And it was not what they promised in the slightest. So, yeah, it's sort of, that's my first anti-choice. And I know that you're a lot more forgiving of Spore than I am, of course. Yeah, well, I think for two reasons. Number one, I knew basically nothing about Spore until I saw it. And I was like, oh, that that's neat, because I had a friend who had it, 
and he showed it to me and I played it. I was like, oh, this is neat. And I like had no idea it existed before then. So I had no pre- preconceived like notions or, you know, expectations of what it would be. And then also like, yeah, just generally I'm more forgiving of shit in video games. Well, at if, least you know, too, right? Yeah. I, I think I'm still more forgiving of bullshit in video games than you are to some extent, but yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah, I, I did follow it and there was a lot of hype back in the day. Or I should say in the circles I ran in back then uh, about this uh, new game from Maxis. Because you know, I have three games from Maxis on my list. So, of course, I paid attention to it, right? Yeah. And it should also tell you the type of gamer I was. So, yeah. It's just... Uh, I guess I should say... Not say no more pre-orders, but... Uh, jaded me. And the other one is Team Fortress 2. And this is uh, a game soured. Uh, in my opinion, uh, I played Team Fortress Two. You know, this is actually the game I have the most hours on Steam with, and uh, it is inflated because a part of that is just having the game open in the background for uh, loot drops, which back in the day made a lot more sense because the economy was actually a big part of the game, which is also part of the problem. But I'll get to that. It went from a simple. Well, what at the time would be class-based shooter, now called hero shooter, where uh, each class is uh, pretty strictly defined with their strengths and weaknesses and uh, hard counters and soft counters. And it was focused on team play. Yeah, I mean, it's right there in the name, Team Fortress. Well, then uh, they started updating the game and each of the classes in turn got an update. And I was there to watch the game evolve over time. In some ways good, in some ways bad. Uh, Each class got an update where each class got essentially an alternate set of weapons. Each, uh, each, and saying class again feels weird, but each class uh, has three weapons and they got an alternative to each one. Originally, it would just be a side grade. With some minor exceptions, like uh, Medic's uh, uh, melee weapon was a direct upgrade because nobody would really do their uh, melee with a Medic anyway. Uh, i trying to think of uh, the early ones. Uh, but it usually upped up different play styles. And at first, that wasn't such a bad thing, but then they started going crazy with it, with more... Uh, basically, removing the idea of having counters where it's just well if uh, if that doesn't work try this one weapon and that well that completely erases that counter and changes the entire class and made subclasses but then it, they kept going further and further down the rabbit hole and adding also cosmetics which at first were just random loot drops which was part of the reason why I have a lot of hours in the game was that was actually very lucrative to get the other items that you needed. Just get a random hat and trade it off for a bunch of shit. But it also started to change up the art style of the game. The The, the game was built around 1950s uh, promotional uh, comics and promotional uh, artwork showing like worker safety, that sort of thing. And then suddenly, oh, well, uh, this uh, guy has you know, uh, neon green. 
you know, uh, athletic supporters or yeah, that sort of thing. And it just started to get more and more messy. Then they introduced uh, the epic items, which uh, has particle effects. And uh, they uh, introduced uh, different weapons that had also very loud particle effects. And it started to just get a bit much. Then they added the fact that they started monetizing everything and they moved the game to free to play. So then everything started to become a microtransaction on top of the game I already bought. So you could start to see where the game started to sour on me. And this was also the game that I did a little bit of competitive gameplay in. Where, you know, I honestly wasn't good enough to get into the proper brackets. And what brackets I could get into. Uh, people just wouldn't take it seriously. And then would get mad at uh, people for not practicing enough. Never mind the fact that they, you know, would skip practices and... Uh, were just on the team because they were banging the uh, owner of the team, right? Hey, actually, I'm, I'm not joking on that one. Uh, the last team I was on uh, was uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend co-owned the team, and uh, he cheated on her, and she dissolved the team because of it. And he would just yeah you know, write off uh, literally every practice, and he was. Uh, I think he was uh, the demo man, which was uh, a pretty key player uh, for strategy. So, yeah, very frustrating. It kind of soured me as well. But it was just uh, watching the evolution and de-evolution of the game at the same time. It kind of uh, jaded me uh, on uh, really first-person shooters, or I should say team-based first-person shooters. And honestly, I never really got into... Multiplayer on single on yeah, solo um, yeah multiplayer where it's yeah it's just deathmatch. So yeah, you know, it's kind it's kind of that weird distaste for microtransactions, uh, balking at uh, it's just cosmetic, and my foray into uh, uh, competitive multiplayer <laughs> all rolled into one game, right? Yeah, sounds that way. But you can see why it's also a good one to end on, huh? Yes, indeed. Indeed. 24 games. We had zero overlap. Oh, um, we had like 0. 0.5 overlap. I guess, yeah. But other than that, yeah, zero overlap. Which feels both like, that feels right, but also feels weird to me. Like, you know, we we've, we spend so much time together and we have... We do have a lot of different tastes, for sure. Like, we say that on every game club, but I thought in some cases we would have a couple of more similar, but no. We had, we had which a is couple fine. of Jason, but, you know, that was about it. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, we're two completely, you know, we're two different Wait, people. We are? So, with, <laughs> I know, right? We're two completely different people who have had different lives and pasts and all that jazz, like, and it, you know, so much of what informs what someone likes or is into or you know whatever is a lot just sort of random happenstance by what they came into contact and then formed their likes or dislikes and then they sort of for the most part continue down that path but you know i'm glad that we didn't have really any overlap it's you know interesting and nice it makes up for a nice long episode yeah it's fucking 1 a.m we've been recording for over three hours. Some of it will go away in the edit from cutting out like silences and stuff, but. But not a lot. 
No. I'm, it's been a while since fucking it's been a while since we had one this long. I know. But it's alright. That's something that has changed. <laughs> I, just, I can't record three hours every week anymore. I just can't do it. I'm old. I get sleepy. I have to fucking be responsible. Tomorrow is going to be shitty. Actually, I don't even know what my schedule looks like for tomorrow. Let's take a look. I'm going to do this one thing, and then we can wrap it up and close it out so that I can... My throat hurts. That's going to suck no matter what, since my whole job is talking to people. No, no, you're just going... Having a... You're going to have flashcards, and you hold them up. Uh, so that, so, that's, oh, so how does that make you feel? Tell me about your mother. Uh-huh. How does that make you feel? Right, right. Okay, go on. Tell tell me more. Tell me about that. Now show me on the doll. Eight, nine, ten appointments tomorrow. Could be worse. A couple of first timers. That's those two sessions will be easy. That one can go either way. That'll be easy. This person's not answering, and I'm gonna have to report them and deal with court stuff, so yay. Goody. That session will be easy. It's about fifty fifty tomorrow for likely easy stuff versus difficult stuff so it won't be too bad i guess i'll be all right so yeah now obviously no game club this week or anything else like episode 200 we did it we talked about basically our top games for one reason or another like they, they made our significant list so mine were mostly alphabetical and yours were just there yeah uh, um, somewhat organized but not really right well, Rage, why don't you uh, hit them with them socials? Well, I've been Caffeine Rage. You can find me on Twitter, Gaming with CR, or you can find me on Steam, Caffeine Rage. And you've been Gaming Psychologist. You can find me on the YouTubes by searching for Gaming Psychologist on Twitter at JMA4707, where I've been shit posting like a madman <laughs> for a couple of days. Yeah. And if you want to be my friend on Steam, you can uh, send a friend request to jarthur4707. And if you wish to let them know exactly what episode of the podcast you're coming from, the password for this week is HAPPY200. <laughs> HAPPY200. Yeah, because why not at this point? It's too late for me to try to be witty. Or is it too early? I've lost track. Yes. Anyway, if you wish to help us be witty... You can do so via jailpodcast at gmail.com with your letters, voicemails, game-related topics, or just tweet them to us via Podcast on the Twitter. Our lovely, lovely patrons have supported us for quite a while, and we thank you very, very, very much. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you wish to pass uh, along our podcast and let uh, us be known, vjlpodcast.podbean.com, which hosts the show notes, the RSS feed, and links to all our stuff, or you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or your podcatcher of choice. Our intro and outro music is On the Ground by Kid McLeod for the 200th time. You can find his work over at acomputech.com, and... As always, as his lovely music starts to roll across my voice. Bye bye now. Uh, see you next time with 201 and the Game Club. Bye bye. Oof.